before we get into the show, I'd like to request a couple of things from you, if you wouldn't mind. When you've got the time, I'd love you to head over to bjjstrength.com forward slash gymballfree, J-Y-M-B-A-L-L free. I'll put the link below and that's for you to get access to some free content from the incredibly well-received and my latest program, the Gym Ball for BJJ course, which is using a gym ball or a stability ball, depending on what terms you use, to dramatically improve um, your movement for jiu-jitsu. I'll put the link below, but head head over to that page and you can get access to some free content from it or you could even head to bjjstrength.com forward slash gym ball if you want to take a look at the full program and take a look at all the testimonials you know whatever is best for you um but if you're interested in strength and conditioning um you know one-on-one coaching some of the other free material that i have like the breathing for bjj course you can also head to bjjstrength.com forward slash programs Unfortunately, even though I'm British, I've used the um, American spelling because I think it's easier and quicker. So a program spelled P-R-O-G-R-A-M-S. Again, I'll I'll put the link below. Um, But more than anything, guys, if you do enjoy the content that I put out on the podcast or any other channel, really, one of the biggest ways that you can support me and support the podcast is by spreading the word um, about the show whether it's via social media, put, put in a link of one of your favorite shows and sharing it to people uh, on your Facebook page, on your Instagram, me- sending it to people, or just when you're talking to people at the gym and you know, you're know you sharing some of maybe some of the knowledge that you've picked up, let people know where they can find the show. And what really, really helps more than anything to help grow the audience and grow the podcast is go on to whatever platform you use, whether it's iTunes or another platform, if you could leave a rating and a review, um, I'll be sure to you know give, give as many people as I can a shout out when they do that. But these things are an incredible help for the podcast and inc- an incredible way to support the show. But with that, guys, you know check out the links in the show notes if you've got the time. Otherwise, let's get on with the show. Hello you lovely, lovely people and welcome to the latest episode of the BJJ Strength Podcast. Today I'm bringing you an interview with Paul Brown who is one of the leading fight strength and conditioning coaches with a heavy specialisation in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu um, coming out of Ireland. Uh, Paul is a Masters competitor himself, a brown belt, recently medalled at the IBJJF Europeans in 2019, um, led a, a training camp with a bunch of a purple belt and above athletes going to the Europeans. I believe everyone medaled. I want to say everyone medaled um, in the in the training camp that he led. But very interesting that he was a training camp that he did online. Um, so training athletes virtually. Um, so that, I think that's really, really interesting uh, in terms of his approach and how he, how he does the programming. Because if you're listening to this podcast, maybe you know Paul, right? And great, you can go and work with Paul. But there's a higher possibility that you can't get to work with Paul in person. So learning some of the concepts he talks about, I think, can be very good when you're, you know, at a distance from, from a strength and conditioning coach. And also, you know, it could be a very, very good person for you to actually reach out and work with um, directly. And we get into his philosophies and approaches for strength and conditioning for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, not only for for athletes and competitors, for, but for people other, that are older as well and how you can handle the demands um, of Jiu-Jitsu and strength and conditioning and, and getting the most out of your body. 
Um, so you know you're, you're you're getting a complete download from someone who's a very very experienced strength and conditioning coach. You know his philosophies, his concepts, and his principles that you can take and apply yourself. So I think it's incredibly va- valuable. Um, the one thing I will say just before you, we get into the show is Paul. Um, if you are listening, I hope you are listening. You know deepest apologies for not getting this show out. Um, you know much much sooner. It was uh, probably about five weeks five weeks ago. So I actually spoke to Paul. Um, but I had a backlog of shows. I've been buying a new house. Excuses, excuses, excuses. There shouldn't be any excuses, Paul. Um, please, you know, it was, it was. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I think everyone else is going to enjoy the conversation. So, with that, guys, I'll shut up and leave Paul do the talking. You're listening to the BJJ Strength Podcast, helping you be your best physically. On the mats and off the mats. With your host, BJJ Black Belt and physical optimization specialist, Lawrence Hello, you lovely, lovely people, and welcome to the latest episode of the BJJ Strength Podcast. Today, I'm very lucky to have with me Paul Brown, all the way from Dublin, Ireland. Is that correct, Paul? Yeah, yeah, based in Dublin, yeah. Yeah, you're a jiu-jitsu brown belt, strength and conditioning coach, specializing in jiu-jitsu. Um, bunch of stuff that we can talk about, bunch of stuff we can say about yourself, but why don't you say hello and say hello and give a quick introduction. Cool, yeah, well, thanks for having me, man, and uh, hello to everyone who's listening as well. Um, yeah, just about myself, I'm, as I said, as Lauren said, I'm a, I'm a brown belt in jiu-jitsu, and I've been doing it for around, I think, eight years now. Um and I'm also a strength and conditioning coach, so I run my own facility here in Dublin and specialize in, on working with people who are maybe, you know, 30, 40, 50 year, years of age in that age gap and, pe- and obviously people who are much older. Would work with a lot of athletes here in the facility I have. Um, I've been doing a lot with a lot of the guys in the jiu-jitsu scene here in Ireland lately um, and also people from other sports such as endurance sports like maybe marathon running and triathlons and things like that. And the age profile of a lot of those guys would be, again, people who are in their 40s and, and 50s and things like that, you know, people who just kind of train and compete on the, uh, on the weekends and, and um, really want to look after their bodies, but again, have probably a bit of mileage on the clock. So I would work a lot with, uh, with people like that, you know. Um, and as far as jiu-jitsu, I mean, I've been doing jiu-jitsu for, as I said, eight years. And over here in Ireland, in Dublin in particular, it's a very... It's in the middle of a boom. The the scene at the moment. There's jujitsu schools everywhere. You can't throw throw uh, throw a stone without hitting one at the moment. It seems. Mm. But back when I started eight years ago, there was I think two black belts in the country. Um, one would be John Kavanagh, who people would know as as McGregor's uh, head coach, and the other would be Andy Ryan, who's my head coach. Mm. So at the time, the scene was very very small, and it was a very niche sport. Whereas since the boom, since McGregor became famous, everybody's everybody in the mainstream here now would be much more aware of combat sports. Everybody knows what MMA is, and a lot of people are just training jiu-jitsu now and training and competing all the time. Like the the size of the tournaments over here has grown massively in that time. Like the the Irish Open now is on next month, and it's a two day event for the first time. And I remember competing in it where there was maybe two hundred people. And, and, you know, that's a, that's a serious growth. There's maybe five, six times that probably going to be competing at the next one. So it's been great to see the sport grow so big, you know, in the last while. Yeah. So you mentioned Conor McGregor and him being responsible for 
maybe part of that growth. And that's kind of understandable. But given recent events and you brought his name up, I have to ask you, what's the general feeling about him at the moment after the incident? And if people don't know what the incident is, he, uh, I like to say apparently, because all you can see is a grainy video, you don't know the context behind it, but got into an argument with a guy in a, in a pub. Someone mm. said a dis- dispute about whiskey. I don't know whether that's true. But he clearly punches the guy and the guy looks to be you know, quite a bit older, maybe in his 50s or 60s. Yeah, it's crazy. It's been like over the last couple of years. I mean, obviously you can imagine now being in your, what, what is Connor? He's about 31, 32, I'm going to guess. Roughly. And I know I know in my 20s, late 20s, I was off partying around the world and, and, and traveling around the Southern Hemisphere, backpacking with my mates and, you know, being a bit of a general mad bastard. So I can only imagine <laughs> what, what would have gone wrong if someone had just handed me $100 million, you know? I mean, it's got to be very hard for someone to remain sane and not lose themselves in that madness you know and there just seems to be over the last while an endless stream of just crazy incidents popping up and connor was always like i would have seen connor on the on the mma scene here before he ever went to the ufc and stuff and i i I remember going to see him fight multiple times on local events and even when cage warriors was was over here before the the explosion of the irish uh crew onto the mma scene I remember seeing him and and, and, and I, he talked at a seminar I was at years ago, actually. And I could tell back then he was just a different type of guy. He was driven, focused, but a, just a bit a bit mad as well, you know. He always just had that bit of an edge to him. Like he was an absolute uh, charismatic dude, but always just a, 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 did, ran, uh, ran to his own kind of, uh, danced to his own beat, you know, that sort of way. He just yeah. did things his way and... You know, there was no talking to him about stuff. He was always just like that. So, obviously, when when you you reach that worldwide celebrity level, it's just, yeah, it's it's very it's probably very easy to get get carried away with yourself and lose lose your sense of reality and stuff. So, I'd I'd I'd, I'd hope that he has better people around him now than he has had over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I know he did that big interview last week where he was very apologetic and stuff, um, but. I mean, it's easy to say things and actions speak louder than words. So I'm hoping he he hasn't let it he hasn't pissed it all away. Whereas it's looking like he may have, you know, he may have just gone too far and spent too far away from the fight game to actually come back and get back to where he was. It'd be a shame, you know. Yeah. That the, 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 the fans over here and stuff. I mean, people. You can tell by social media and stuff. People have just turned against him. You know, the public big, opinion big of him is quite quite low at the moment. So. Paul, we'll do you have, back. real quick, do you have headphones on? I don't at the moment. I might, it might pick up a little bit of echo of my voice coming back into the speakers. Okay. It I'll seems, try and get these it, working. It seems to, well, it seems to be okay, but let's, let's see if we can get them working. If not, we'll carry on, right? We'll work around it. Um, cool. Give me a moment. I'll see if I'm not, yeah, I'll give you a second. People know I'm not Joe Rogan, um, so they don't, you know, if there's a little bit of feedback, people, I think, <laughs> they're far more forgiving to me than maybe some of the bigger production podcasts. So we'll work yeah, around no it if it, if it does, doesn't work. Um, yeah, that's that, that's that, that's in, that's interesting. That and you raise you raise a good point, right? And um, my personal opinion is, uh, you know what? I, I won't use maybe the, the words as strong as I've used with some of my friends, but I'm like, you know, it, it's clearly something with you know with his character and his personality that he's, it's it's kind of come it's come to the front a little bit in the in the past with the incidents with um, Nurmagomedov, but that was maybe a little bit different, you know, some, some, some different things going on there. 
but he's she, he's he's clearly shown the propensity, let's say that, uh, to act violently right outside the cage. So you you but you like to your point, you would hope that you know he can clean he can clean shit up and it doesn't happen again, right? If it happens again, I think then that's it. He's going to be done. Going to be done yeah. for good. Absolutely, yeah. Very hard to come back from. As I said, the, the public opinion of him over here at the moment is lower than it's ever been. So, I mean, there's probably, the chances of him turning that, I, I would imagine, are fairly small as it is. And, I mean, it's probably not going to take much more to, to turn people off him for good. You know, that sort of way. So, yeah. I'm just interested to see what the next step is because that interview he did last week, he was kind of calling everybody out. And, you know, he seemed a bit all over the place and a bit erratic. And it, it, it didn't seem calm and measured in the way that you would hope it would be someone who had seen the light was maybe sitting down and taking stock and going, right, I need to fix this, blah, blah, blah. He seemed a bit frantic and a bit frazzled. And I'm just hoping he gets his shit together because when he's good, he's very good. But uh, it's a long way back, you know. And it's, a, it's an age-old story, isn't it? Combat athletes like Mike Tyson is the one that springs to mind where he had yep. it all and just threw it all away. And it took a long time before Mike Tyson was uh, accepted by the public and by a fan base again. That you've yeah you you've got you've got to look at fight sports and think you know to have the personality or the madness to want to get in there in the first place and you know legally smash someone's face in and potentially get your own face smashed in mm. you're probably you're probably at a certain end of the personality spectrum that these things are maybe you know it's, it's it maybe more uh, more likely to happen it's not excusable right I'm not I'm not trying to excuse it in any in any uh, any shape or form because you can look at someone like GSP, right? Who's who's a great champion, but also a complete stand-up person outside the ring, um, or even so. Well, you know, someone like Michael Bisping, right? He's you know mad, pretty crazy in the ring, but um, maybe there's stories about Michael Bisping, as someone could say. But I I don't know of any, and he seems to be a stand-up person outside the ring too, or the cage, we should say. Um, quickly, yeah. go, quickly going back to the audio. Um, so that your audio is not as good coming back through the headphones. Maybe take them out and just turn the volume down on your computer. Okay. So, no so, so we'll reduce, you will reduce the feedback and we'll work around it. It's fine. It's fine. Okay, that's cool. Um, but yeah, that was a nice little sidebar on, on, on McGregor, but I'm not going to paint myself as an MMA expert. Um, my opinions are that of, I think people can think, oh, you're not going to paint yourself as an MMA expert. I think people can, um, so if you just turn the volume down, I think people sometimes yeah, go, well, you, you, well, you train jiu-jitsu, then you must know a bunch about MMA, right? And it's like, I know a little bit, right? I'm a fan. I'm not, you know, so I'm not going to paint myself as an MMA expert. But anyway, I wanted to go back to what we really wanted to talk about today. Um, what, what's, but first and foremost, what's the name of your facility? Oh, uh, Adrenaline Fitness Dublin. Adrenaline Fitness Dublin. And yeah, yeah. Pe- people are welcome to drop in, come and say hello. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So we, um, like, what, what we train here, most, mo- most of the guys we train here, as I said, would be, you know, people who just want to stay in shape and look after themselves. And we put a big focus into, like, working on people's mobility and training around injuries and stuff. So we would have a lot of kind of day-to-day folks that come and train here before and after work. And what you're dealing with is when people are maybe spending their working day behind a desk, is you're dealing with a lot of lower back problems, poor shoulder mobility um poor posture you know hip issues things like that so a lot of those problems kind of present themselves with jiu-jitsu athletes as well because it's just the positions we get ourselves in in the sport and the dynamics of the sport so i do i do uh, uh, the vast majority of my work is strength and conditioning corrective work with a lot of those guys as well as kind of getting people in good shape it's uh, 
it's having to think on my feet and work around uh, issues like that, you know. And um, as I said, I also have been over the last couple of years putting a big emphasis on specific training for jiu-jitsu athletes. So if last year what I started running was I started running uh, online coaching um, kind of training camps. So we did one for the Europeans last year. The Europeans takes place here in Lisbon in Portugal every January, just for the guys who are stateside might not know when it's on. And um, what we did last year was from September onwards, we sort of ran uh, a training group with some guys that were spread out all over Ireland. And we, we just basically uh, ran it online. So I, I kind of had a, a, a chat with people, find out what they what equipment they have available, what injury issues they have, and set them up with training programs. And we did some periodized training programs that ran right through the winter. And we get everybody in, in shape for the, for the Europeans. And it went really well. We had a really good medal haul from the little group that we sent over. So we've been doing those intermittently throughout the year, and um, I've been having great fun with that. So it's been uh, it's been cool just meeting new people, making new friends inside the jiu-jitsu scene that I mightn't have known before through this little project. And it's it's great fun to just kind of try out our, our different protocols and, and and mix and match them with different different types of jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu athletes as well, and see what works with or what what issues arise and what works with people. So been been good fun, yeah. Really delving into the sport because. That's my main, my main interest in life, and my, my, my biggest hobby is jujitsu. Everything sort of revolves around it, so uh, <laughs> it's been good to mix my professional and uh, personal life like that. You know, I really want to go back to talk about the corrective exercises, but first, I'm interested about the online training camp because I've I've battled with this idea as a as a strength and conditioning coach of how do you how how do you approach it in terms of you know what so something some some of the questions that go are going on in my mind you know do you do an assessment with the athletes do they have to meet a certain set of parameters i'm guessing you've got people at different levels coming in coming into the training camp and how you know how do you monitor performance because i've always struggled with you know how can i do that in a way that um does does the person justice right and can give them enough attention but clearly if people are coming away with medals, then you know what you're doing seems seems to be working. So it'd be really interesting to to hear a bit about the process and how you go through that with with the online training camps. Yeah, sure. Um, well, first and foremost, what I did with the first one last year was I I just um, I advertised within some Irish Jiu Jitsu forums here just for some sponsored athletes. I just wanted to try out test out how I would actually run this whole project and see what would work and stuff. So. I got some guys um, just to make sure that they would be people who would be reliable and people that would be consistent. I, I set a parameter that they would have to be purple belt or above. Mm-hmm. And that I kind of in my head that it was someone I maybe knew or knew of that they were consistent, dedicated competitors. So they wouldn't be like someone who'd sign up to do it and then they'd be a nightmare to deal with. You know, I knew that someone who'd, who'd just knuckle down and work hard. Yeah. So I got a great response. A lot of people sent in applications and I picked a, a small group of guys and Basically, what we did was um, I, 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 I set it out from the start that I would keep a cap on the numbers. There was only five, uh, five of us, and I didn't want to give myself too much work to do with the first group. So mm-hmm. what I did then was I basically had a good chat with everyone, either online or through Messenger or whatever, and find out exactly what their training volume, their training schedule, what their pr- pr- current program was like, where their pain points were, what issues they have. And I would sit down then and put together our first program. And we, we did a sort of periodized model where we did three, three different blocks, each one a month long, and, and um, kind of played it by ear and made adaptations to the program. 
as we were going forward. I would always be of the mindset when you when you plan a training program, a strength and conditioning program for someone. I think it was Joe DeFranco um, gave you that phrase. It was where he says you should write it in pencil, not pen. So week yeah. by week, make make um, adjustments and auto correction to the program as we go along. So we would check in with the guys um, every two to three days uh, each week to see what they were doing well with, what they were struggling with. If they had problems, they would send me a little video of them performing an exercise and I could make corrections of that for their next workout and so on. And also what I got into the habit of doing was I would we, we had a little uh, small private Facebook group. So each week I would set a time and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up a live video at such and such a time. I'm going to sit down for an hour and talk here in my office like I'm doing now. And just kind of go over questions and, and things like how do you manage your volume of training. So the guys would send me questions the day before and I'd sit down there and pen it all together for them. And then they could kind of watch it whenever they wanted to watch it. So I found the system week by week. It adapted and it, it worked better for the guys. By the time the, 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 the final phase of training came in, we had everything down to a T. The guys were all putting in great hard work. And uh, we had medals all, all around at the, at the Europeans. So... Very, very happy. And then going forward, I ran a few more of those camps for paying customers through the year. But again, I just kept the, the size of the group to a, a limit. And um, it re- a really good opportunity for me to find out what worked with, with guys, what they could fit into their training week and balance with their jiu-jitsu. And um, it was a real good test drive, a beta test for me, really. And uh, yeah, I found, it, found it to be a great success. So, going to kick off another one, maybe towards the end of this year, probably mid September, something like that. I just have to sit down and plan out my dates. But yeah, I found it fun. I think the key is not to spread yourself too thin. Don't yeah. don't give yourself thirty or forty athletes to work with at the same time because you'll just end up doing everyone a disservice. You need just a small little group, and you can give them you can give them everything. Then you know. Yeah. Uh, if um, if people listening wanted to get in touch and apply for the next cycle could they oh they they can just shoot me a message on on instagram what i'll do is um i have my instagram which is bjj underscore browner that's my my sort of personal one but i I did set up one for the for the strength camp in particular and it's bjj strength camp so um i don't really use a whole lot i stick up a little bit of content on there now and again but they can kind of yeah they can get in touch with me through either one of those you know but uh, i'll be advertising on those forums anyway so i just have to put put together the dates and so on but it was a really fun little project, I have to say, you know, and it was real cool. And when we went to the Europeans last year, it was great because the the small crew of us from different corners of the country were all hooking up for a chat and, you know, they'd all been in the in the Facebook group together. So everyone sort of knew each other and we got on really well, you know, so. That's cool. That's yeah, very it cool. Was really fun. But it, but it, just, it was good to train alongside people, even in a virtual sense, you know. Yeah. And you competed at the, the Europeans this year as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, what was it? Last year was my sixth year at the Europeans. Yeah, yeah. I got, I think I was a, I was a bronze. Nice. And a couple of other guys got, um, that was my first time at Brown Belt as well. So it was nice to actually get off to, get off to a win and start at the Brown Belt. But, uh, we had one of the other guys, the, all, the, all the other guys were purple belts and one of them, uh, was robbed of the gold medal in the purple belt absolute. So I think he got silver in his division and in the absolute. And he was, and so was in the master's category or adult? Oh, yeah, all masters. So the yeah. guys would have been, we had a master, I was in master three for my first time because I just turned 40 last this time last year. Uh, so that was my debut at master three. We had guys at master one, master three, and master four or five. One of the guys, is he five? I think he's four. Just about hanging on to master four. So yeah, it was a nice variety of guys at different weight classes and stuff. So 
yeah, it, it just added a bit of extra spice to the to the day. We were all competing on the same day as well, which was a bit crazy. So I was kind of trying to stay calm and prepare for my own matches, but also keep a half an eye on how the guys were getting on, you know. So it was it was tough, but it was exciting. It made the day more exciting all around. Yeah, yeah. It's um, for people that are not aware of the Europeans. Well, people will be aware of the Europeans, I think, listening to this podcast, but it's it's a huge tournament. It's the biggest European tournament by... Six days, I think. By yeah, yeah. Six days, shit. Yeah, it's, a five, it's either five or six. I think it's six. It's crazy. It's Tuesday a ma- to Sunday. It's, yeah. a gr- it's a really good tournament. Lisb- oh, I, miss, I miss Lisbon. Lisbon's a cool city too. Mm, yeah, I'm going to miss it this coming year because uh, we've got our first baby coming that week. So <laughs> I'm not going to get away with going this year. Well, congratulations. Yeah, yeah. That was the first thing I said when... I- when they told us the due date, I was like, "Are you sure? It's it. it you can't push it back a couple of weeks now." But uh, the annual trip to Lisbon is gone. But at least we have something else to look forward to that week, you know. When my first daughter came along, the due date was uh, end of August, early September, and a friend of mine, I don't know how he he he's a model agent, and he was he knows Lars Ulrich, the drummer from Metallica's oh, wow. wife wife, girlfriend, partner, whatever you, whatever we call her. Um, and he, he went, went to lunch with them and Lars gave him backstage passes to see Metallica at the Reading Festival. And he said, do you want to come with me? And it was like a week before the due date for my daughter and my wife. <laughs> and my wife was like, no chance. And I was living in London, right? So it would be, you know, you got an hour, hour and a half to get to Reading. You'd, I'd have to stay overnight. It, it kind of wouldn't work. And then, you know, they, he went to watch them play. Then he hung out with Lars Ulrich after, after, the, after the show. You know, you got a bunch of, you know, you got drumsticks and a bunch of stuff from them. And he also hung out with, um, this, I believe, the drummer from Royal Blood. I forget, one of the guys from, you know, Royal Blood? Yeah, great band, yeah. Great, great two-piece band who I'm a really big fan of. You yeah, know? they're outstanding, yeah. And my, and my daughter turned up, like, you know, two weeks later. <laughs> oh, you just can't, yeah. You just won't get away with uh, just going AWOL for a couple of days. You have to be on deck, you know. You've got to no, be ready. I don't regret it. I don't regret it, but it's uh, it makes makes for a good story, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. So going back into 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 jujitsu, there's a lot of stuff I'd like to talk about with um, a lot of this, really, um, but particularly around the the strength and conditioning camp. Actually, coming back to the tournament. On the day of the tournament, what approaches were you taking, either with yourself or with the athletes? to prepare for their matches, uh, you know, and I mean prepare in terms of, you know, how are you getting them to hydrate? How, what kind of nutrition are you giving them on the day? What's their warm up? Are you doing anything with the mental preparation as well? Well, not, not on the day where, well, I wasn't specifically with the guys individually on the day because we were all spread out at different times. So okay. the fact that I was competing as well, I just, um, the, the guys are all experienced competitors anyway, so we all sort of have our own things dialed in, our own pre-match routines sort of dialed in anyway, and I was yep. very happy and very confident for that. And obviously as well, with them being from different jiu-jitsu teams, the guys would have their own coaches there, so none of that would be um, like warming up together, none of that would be my responsibility. But what yep. I would do is I, I would look at my, what I'm doing myself, and obviously you know being hydrated and stuff is important, uh, making sure you're on weight and all that stuff. The guys were, all of the guys were well on weight in the run-up to the tournament, so I didn't have to take any measures to help them make weight, which was absolutely great because I was kind of 
mentally I was like, I was, I was putting together a little plan, you know, you know, here's plans, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, get, get, you know, get you tracking your calories and sending me a daily record of what you're eating. But it just didn't have to the way it turned out because all, all, all the, the rest of the crew were, they were all already in shape. And you know, this is what happens when you deal with experienced competitors. They sort of do all of that for you, which was a godsend. It meant I could just focus on my own thing. And funny enough, I actually almost missed weight myself. Really? Because I took my eye off the ball a little. I wore, I brought, the gear I brought with me had a, a heavy tatami jacket. And I was checking my weight, checking my weight constantly all the time. And I was fine on weight. And even the day before, we went to the venue straight from the plane, checked the weight, no problem, went off, relaxed, ate a bit of food, nothing too crazy. Went down there on the day of the competition, jumped on the scale, and I was a kilo and a half over the limit. So whatever way my body had retained water from traveling the day before, just blew up a kilo, like two kilos overnight. So I'm like, fuck, I'm competing in an hour. How the hell did that happen? And I hadn't been over the weight limit in like two weeks. It just held water over that particular night. So I went off and I warmed up, um, real vigorous, intense warm-up. One of the, the young blue belts from our team was with us. Uh, he's only like 16, 17. I just got him to just go at me for like 15 minutes straight on the mats in the warm-up room. We, we went high intensity, full on, had to run out. They were calling me to make weight. And when we were there, I realized I needed to go to the bathroom. You know, bladder was absolutely loaded up. So I said to the guy checking the weight, I said, look, can you hang on for a moment? Is there any chance I can run to the bathroom? Will I have time? And he didn't really want to let me go, but he felt sorry for me. And he said, hey, look, go, go for it. It's cool. Yeah. Now, as it turns out, one of my best mates, my training partners, he's in my weight class and he's the same belt. We've been training and competing together for years. And his first name is Paul as well. And what they did was they were calling me, Paul, 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 to check my weight while I was in the bathroom. He thought it was him, so he went back over. They weighed him a second time, marked it down in the book, and put him in the bullpen. So when I came back, they just rushed me straight through. Never checked my weight. <laughs> so I'm just, I just said nothing. I kind of figured what was going on straight away. I just went, uh, okay, cool. And they walked me out to the mat. I was possibly, possibly still a little bit over, but I'll never know. You know, no, so. no, no, this, this is on record. You were on, you, you checked, right? You were underweight. You were underweight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe my look. I was standing in the bullpen next to him and he was just laughing because he'd figured it out straight away. It's like, oh my God, thank God. Someone was smiling down on me that day, you know? Oh, but, uh, these things happen. Funny. Not, not frequently, but they do happen, thankfully. You could do a show just on random stories about tournaments, right? Stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, just bizarre shit that goes on on comp day when, when the nerves are up and you're, you're running around frantically, you know? Oh, that's crazy! That's crazy. What do you um, what do you do to warm up, other than uh, when you're not when you're not trying to drop two kilos? Yeah, yeah, that's the first time I've ever, and I, I've never in my life missed weight at a jujitsu tournament. Thank uh, touch wood, but uh, yeah. yeah, I've never had to deal with that sort of panic before. It was bizarre, but um, do you know what it was? It was probably just uh, the, you know those little. T- uh, Portuguese custard cakes, what are they, the pastel things? <laughs> probably just overindulged on one of those after my dinner the night before, and it just made me hold on to a bit of water, and probably not the best pre-match stuff. But uh, they put up, they, it's the, the Portuguese food can be quite salty sometimes as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe the shock. But um, yeah, no, if, for warming up before competition, I make sure I go through uh, a full-body mobility routine because I'm 40 now, and the old joints take a little bit longer just to lubricate, you know, so... I will make sure that I work through it's sort of like a mini sort of a yoga routine, 10 minutes maybe, um, just to war- warm the joints up. And then I'll spend a bit of time actually getting my rev counter up, like getting some high intensity bursts. So ideally, 
uh, some drills or, or, or if you have space like like at that tournament, you can roll. That's amazing. But as you know, at most competitions, you don't really have that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You don't have the luxury of, of having mat space to roll. So um, if that's not an option, there's plenty of things I use. Um, some of the exercises I like to use, anything with a dynamic jump is good. So once you're well warmed up, something that, you know, you can get those, those tuck jumps, you can get a split stance tuck jumps. So if you're standing in a, one of my favorites is that, that sort of, you know, that B stance, that split stance you would use sometimes for Romanian deadlifts for you've one foot slightly in front of the other, almost like you're in that crouch wrestling position. Yeah. Like a half, like a, like a half lunge almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So from there you're doing like, um, just a dynamic burst straight up into the air as if you're doing that, you know, that high vertical jump. So Mm -hmm. I love using a few reps on those as well, maybe sets of 10 on those just to get that, 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 that little bit of plyometric reaction as well. Plenty of reactive jumps, things like that, step off and jump. So I like to use those just to prep the soft tissue, just for the little bursts, uh, those dynamic bursts, because, uh, as you know, when you get onto that mat, sometimes it's just go from the from from, from the first uh, from the first few seconds. So it's um, it's it's very hard to just turn it on as relaxed yeah. as you want to be on the mat. You do need to. It is it is a bit of a fight too at the end of the day. So you do need to be ready if your opponent is is going to come at you with everything he has. So you've got to be I'm, ready to react. I'm amazed how many people I see not warming up. Prop mm. well, you know, they do a little bit of stretching, a little bit of movement, but. It, your approach sounds very similar to what I like to do, which is, you know, loosen the body up. Then I want to get the heart rate up. Um, usually is it, I like the term rev counter. That's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, get the heart rate up because I don't want it to be a shock to the system, a shock to my body when I first get on the mat. I want my body to be, you know, close to the point of match intensity, maybe not quite match intensity. So then it's, like I said, not a shock to the system. And then the dynamic, I, lo- I love attack jump. I love attack jump. Um, you don't need much space, but it's great for just uh, getting firing up the central nervous system. So, like you say, if you've got to go, if you need to move quickly, your body is prepared to move quickly. Yeah, like you'll find, I find that a lot of people before, like I always try to talk to my par- training partners and my teammates and stuff beforehand. And some guys like to just stay as calm as possible and do as little as possible. And I'd be the opposite. I do need to wake my body up a little bit like that because I've gone out onto the map having been very relaxed and just chilled out and stretched out and had a chat with my friend and then walked onto the mat. And I just don't perform. I don't react to situations that I should. And the, the, the reason a lot of people t- kind of take to, they spend their time relaxing is a lot of times people are afraid to burn themselves out. But you got to look at it this way. If you go into a jujitsu class, I'm going to go to my jujitsu class tonight and I'm going to be doing round after round after round. It's competition sparring. I'm not going to be burned out just because I spent five minutes killing myself in the first round because I'm probably going to do seven or eight more rounds afterwards and I'll still, I'll still have a bit in the tank and I'll probably feel better later in that session because I've woken up my body a bit, you know? So yeah. people just get a bit overcautious with their, their energy levels before a tournament. Spend 10 minutes, but get yourself properly awake and fired up. It's, it's important, you know, because you can't go out there cold and you can't go out there struggling to get through the gears because... Once you're there, you're going. You're going into that nine out of ten intensity in a matter of seconds. You know, yeah. you're, you're most likely going to be there. You know, what, I completely agree. I've talked about this in the past so many times, and I was, in, you know, the, the person I fought against recently, and I'm like, he didn't seem to be doing any any kind of warming up. He was gassed after the match, um, <laughs> even though he won. Um, but 
I tell people all the time, right? You know, warm up. And one thing I've read recently um, that I've started to bring into my warming up uh, is balance work or proprioception. Apparently, proprioception is only second to pain in uh, the electrical stimulation it sends through the body. Mm. So I started bringing that into just, you know, fire up the central nervous system, maybe kind of, you know, maybe after the, you know, getting the rev counter up and before the dynamic stuff, I would just do a little bit of balance work, just kind of, you know, on one foot, closing my eyes just to get the body, get central nervous system, you know, firing a bit more. That's the one thing I've added recently. Yeah, I do a lot of that myself. And particularly, as you know, as I said, you when you're a master's competitor, you have a bit more mileage on the clock. So it's important to really wake up those joints, you know. Um, I would do a lot of that. Like I, w- I would work myself through that sort of yoga. I bring my yoga mat to competitions where we're at a bigger venue. And I know there's going to be maybe a quiet area somewhere upstairs or in a hallway somewhere nearby. And I'll go in and I'll work a little bit. And a lot of it will be getting on one foot and stabilizing. Hip airplanes, do you know what they are? Hip airplanes, uh, not not by that name, so maybe not. Body weight exercise, and it's a hip stability exercise, and I find it's awesome. So you're standing in a sort of, um, it's like a single leg Romanian deadlift. So you're standing on your right foot, you're hinging your hips back, you're sticking your left heel back, so your left leg is long and it's back behind you, and your arms are out to the side like an airplane. So you're balanced on the one foot in that position. And there's a couple of variations. These are on YouTube anyway, hip airplanes, they're great. But there's variations where you can freeze your body in that position. So you've got your left leg back behind, your arms out to the side, and you can slowly rotate your upper body outwards, like almost to the side. And you're standing, you're still standing on that one foot. So your hip has to stabilize your body as you're working slowly through that rotational movement. You're rotating the the, the upper body inwards and outwards whilst keeping that standing leg very still. I find that's a phenomenal. We use it. Uh, we use it a lot in our warm ups here. Here at the facility I work at, mm-hmm. and um, it's great for just building that hip stability. You're doing it barefoot, so the the lower leg muscles, the calves, the tibialis, all those muscles around the lower half of the legs are really, really working. The feet, you've got to grip the floor, and the the feet. People forget the feet. The feet are so important for jujitsu mm-hmm. players. We use them. The, the higher level you become in jujitsu, as you go up through the belts, you learn that you use your feet like hands. So you've got to get very good at, 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 at strengthening the, 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 the connective tissue through the feet, the muscles in the feet. So a couple of things I would generally do on any day I train would be I would do a little bit of self-myofascial release on the soles of the feet. Mm-hmm. And also I would walk the heel-toe walks nice and slowly. I would walk on my big toes only, a couple of sets of things like that. that they will be like the first things I'll do before I do, any, do anything in, else in my warm-up, you know? And it's, it's doing those things consistently. They make such a difference to your game. Yeah. Again, like you said, your proprioception is improved straight away. And when you have really good control over what your feet are doing, you're a dangerous man off your back. So, of course, that, that, that's a huge factor, you know? Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of all of, that, all of that stuff. I've not done the hip airplane. That's something that um, I just looked it up. It's something I'll, I'll, I'll be adding in for sure and in, would encourage other people to take a look at that exercise. Um, but I was going to make a point that I think some people can go, well, I'm on my back all the time. You know, I'm a guard player. You, and you've made a good point about, you know, foot strength with the way that you use your feet off, off, the, off the ground. But I think the other reason it's incredibly important to have strong feet is when you're not in jiu-jitsu, when you're walking around, 
going about your day-to-day business or you're doing your strength and conditioning, if your feet are not strong, and this is not just the feet, right? It's stability through the whole lower body and through the core as well. Um, but particularly with the feet, then the knees and the hips will pick up that slack. And over time, you know, when you, you, your, your knees and your hips are not tracking properly because your, your feet are weak and your feet are not stable, it's, you're far more likely to lead into hip and knee problems, which is very common in jujitsu. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're only as strong as the weakest link in your chain really, you know? And I mean, that would be one of my main philosophies when it comes to strength and conditioning for, for anybody, not just just jujitsu athletes, but uh, what I would always look at getting people doing is finding out where their absolute weakest points are, their poorest uh, uh, places of mobility in the body and really just doubling down on working those areas with lots of frequency. So if somebody like, I'll give you an example, my shoulder mobility, my thoracic mobility is probably my poorest area. So what I do is in most of my workouts in the warm up of every workout I do, there's a decent amount of shoulder mobility, thoracic mobility stuff there. And then a little bit of strength and stability for the joints, you know, so I will target those areas pretty much every day of the week. They'll be the areas I'll work on. And when I slip away from those habits, I notice that my, my, aches and pains in those areas become more prominent so it's it's about finding the the weakest link in your chain and really attacking that that's that's got to be a priority of your training whereas a lot of people just kind of they approach their strength and conditioning with like um, that sort of it's like i got to go into the gym and beat myself up kind of thing and get myself really really strong really really powerful they prioritize that whereas you've got to it's not that you don't need to get strong and work hard in the gym but you really really do need to find your weaker areas because you're in a in a sport that's very demanding on the body and if you don't do it it will come back and kick your ass there's one school of thought and i see this popping up quite often where people will say that all you need to do for jiu-jitsu strength training um or for other sports in that matter is you do squats you do deadlifts and you do a bench press and yeah, I can go in. I, I'm not trying. I'm not going to knock those as particular exercises. Each exercise is only a tool. It's more important the movement that you develop in strength with. Um, but let's just categorize that as just bare bones, pure strength exercises. Um, and regardless of what you use as strength exercises, what would you say is kind of the percentage of time that you dedicate to? you know, the pure strength type training versus, you know, corrective exercises or uh, stability exercises, the kind of things that we just talked about with, you know, with the, with the hips, with the feet and with the shoulders. Okay. Um, well, per workout, if I was working, yeah, if I'm doing a strength and conditioning workout or I have one of my athletes working out there, a lot of it will depend on the needs of the athlete. If you have someone who, who comes to me and they've just got terrible mobility issues and stuff, we'll obviously de- de- dedicate a lot more time to fixing those than we will to, you know, grinding and working hard. But um, some, sometimes people can go too far down one, that, that side of the spectrum too. They can, mm-hmm. they can spend all their days just doing mobility and corrective work and they're just getting weaker and weaker as time goes on because they're not, they're not building their overall, their max strength, you know. So you've you, you got to find the right balance. Um, for, for most people I tend to do, I, I build the warm-ups around mobility work. And I get them in the habit of doing that repeatedly. And then warm-ups that they're doing before jiu-jitsu. Get into the habit of, so if you're doing jiu-jitsu, let's say, for instance, four classes per week and two strength and conditioning workouts. So you that, that's six workouts per week. If you're doing mobility work for 15 minutes at the start of all of those sessions, that adds up over time. 
And that's probably going to be a lot enough for most people, 15, 20 minutes, probably plenty. And then they can work the rest of the workout, whether it's 45 minutes or whatever, on strength work. So it's not that you're, you're doing the vast majority of your work as corrective work, but you are hitting it frequently. And yeah. a bit of variety involved in that really, really helps. What I like to do is I like to, um, if guys are, are, are training, I like them to get to do some mobility work, general five, 10 minutes of, you know, like it might be a yoga workout, a small full body mobility routine, something to wake up the hips, the wrists, the shoulders, the spine. And then I'll give them a little circuit of just um, kind of prep exercises, such as uh, something for your upper back, like um, a blackburn, you know, where you're lying belly down and you're doing the handcuffs position behind your back. And then yep. you'll slowly bring your arms out wide and around to the wide position. So maybe 10 reps on a blackburn, I'll get them to flip over onto their back and I'll get them to do like frog pumps or glute bridges, maybe 10, 20 reps there. And then maybe something to open up the hip flexors. So a hip flexor stretch. And I'll get them to repeat that circuit three times. And then they can move into their into their warm-up sets on whatever their, their, their main lift for the day is. So I get them in the habit of doing a, a, a little preparation circuit like that. Might even throw in something to excite the nervous system, like um, five box jumps at the end of it, something like that, just to just to sort of progress the warm-up, you know. It, 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 it'll, it'll basically get you working on the, the biggest problem areas we have, waking mm. up those upper back and shoulder muscles, waking up those hips and glutes, and then just waking up your nervous system. And a few rounds of that, and you, you, you tend to feel more ready to train and more ready to hit the weight room and, and things like mm. that. That's, that's just a, a kind of a standard idea, but I would tend to structure things like that into most workouts. So it's, it's not that you're spending half of your, your workout just kind of stretching and doing mobility, which can be boring for some people. But if we sprinkle it in, I find it's great. Uh, another tool I really love to use is when guys are training a big compound lift, like let's say we're doing a deadlift or a squat or something. And obviously if you're working on strength, you need to use a little recovery window between those sets, whether it's two, three minutes or whatever. Mm -hmm. What I get guys to do is I'll get them to integrate sets of uh, band dislocates, uh, prone band dislocates, band pull-aparts, things like that. Maybe while you're resting for those two minutes, make sure you hit 20, 25 reps on this exercise for me and then come back and recover for the rest of that window and then do your next set. So, so if again... Do, so if they do... It, just to clarify then, if they're, doing a de if they're doing a deadlift, what part of the body are they working the dislocates on? That's a shoulder exercise. It's just a shoulder okay. mobility. Just a, a, it's like, you know, when you hold a band straight out in front of you with a little stretch on the band yep. and you slowly bring it up in the air all the way behind and down towards your butt and then back over again. That's sort of circular motion all the way around. So again, you could use black burns. You could use band pull-aparts. There's, there's lots of variety, but something that's not going to take away from your deadlift. So you're not yep. maybe going to go off and do a load of glute bridges where you're going to, you know, burn your hips out. But Something that you can integrate into that rep, just fill that that dead time because athletes don't like standing still and resting for too long either, which is, it could be an issue trying to actually get people to rest sufficiently between those heavy strength sets. You'll know from training guys, it's, uh, it's mm -hmm. tough sometimes to get them to just take their time, take adequate recovery. But I do like to sprinkle in, like, you know, maybe it'll be a bit like shoulder mobility, like shoulder cars, you know, controlled articular rotations, mm -hmm. things like that. Just just fill in that sort of dead time with something that's not going to take away from your your main targeted lift. You know, if I'm, if I'm squatting that day, I might just have a little bit of shoulder mobility work sprinkled in between, especially if, like it is for most jiu-jitsu people, the shoulders are a, 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 a problem, you know. It tends to be a, a bit of an issue for a lot of people because of the, the nature of the sport. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just you said shoulder mobility work, but I'm thinking about those exercises. I think about it more as it's an active. It, 
you are mobilizing the joint and you are moving the joint through a full range of motion. But I see it more as an activation slash stability, mm. stability exercise as opposed to yeah. a mobility exercise. Yeah, well, yeah, I would, I, I would too, pretty much. I, I, I do love those types of things as well because we do need huge amounts of shoulder stability. The, the quality of how we move has to be good, but these things have to be done under control because you've got to be able to stabilize those joints. We take a lot of impact on those joints, don't we, in jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. like when we get swept, when, when people try to sweep us and we post on our hand and, you know, our shoulders absorb that impact. Um, it's an area I'd, I'd know a lot about because I'm, I'm actually dealing with an issue with this right shoulder over the last, uh, we'll say, I had, I had a pop the night I got my brown belt and it's never been right since. And I'm fine when I train, but when I sleep, I wake up just sore. And I eventually bit the bullet and got an MRI recently. And it turns out there's a tear in the supraspinatus tendon. Mm-hmm. So I've been sort of managing that without even knowing I had it, you know. So it would be an area that I would constantly be researching, would be shoulder health and stuff. Um, Eric Cressy is a great guy. Uh, for he, he has lots of good material on uh, shoulder health, shoulder uh, shoulder mobility and stability. And uh, finding exercises that work those pain points, I find, is, is paramount to a lot of jiu-jitsu guys because we do suffer from that internal rotation because of the nature of the sport and the positions sorry my daughter walked in to say hello before she goes to school see, so see I, the I, in the background on the screen i get, here, yeah. I get, I get, get distracted um mm. yeah shoulders show, show, are huge right so you, and i've talked i talk a lot about you know you post out a lot with your arm have to base in multiple different positions do you do any straight arm strength work with the with the upper body yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorites um, is the half Turkish getup. So okay. you know the, tur- the Turkish getup where we, we get up to our feet. With the half Turkish getup variation that I love to use, uh, it's where we get up. So I'm, I'm, I've lifted my hips off the floor and I pause in that position. And what I get my guys to do is I get them to stay there for a five-second isometric hold mm-hmm. because we want the isometric strength in that shoulder to be really good. So let's say, for instance, I have the, I have the kettlebell in my left hand and I'm getting up onto my right elbow, my right hand. I lift the hips, and I hold. That's where I stay. Now, my right hand is on the ground, so I'm trying to pin my right shoulder blade down my back, away from my ear, so that it's locked into place. Mm-hmm. And then, we gotta, as I said, we've got to stay there for five seconds. So that will build that durability in that, in that joint. That it's able to stabilize you. And then when you're coming back down to the floor, I get the guys to come down as slowly as possible. Imagine that you're, you're lying down onto a glass surface, so we can't crash to the floor. We've got to gently place your hips to the floor, Gently place your elbow to the floor. Gently place your back to the floor. So there's a big emphasis on that eccentric uh, part of that mo- uh, motion as well. I find that that's one of my. Uh, it's one of those exercises that really just helps my shoulder feel so good. You know, that, yeah. that one and the kettlebell armbar. You know what a kettlebell armbar is? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I do, I do. Um, explain it. Explain it to people though. Yeah, so kettlebell armbar again. You're lying on your back in a similar position. Let's say I have the kettlebell in my left hand it's up in the air i put my right hand out to my side but also maybe slightly further behind me as if i'm getting arm barred at an angle and then i step my left leg which is on the same side as the kettlebell i step my left leg over my right leg so i'm almost turning over onto my stomach but the whole time i've got to keep the kettlebell straight up in the air above my left shoulder so even though i'm turning over turning my hips towards the floor my arm is getting extended out behind me so what's happening is the fact that I'm, I'm having to control that position the rotator cuff is working hard to adapt to how my body is moving and once once you've gone far enough you, your shoulder will let you know you'll feel a huge stretch and again I like to get, get guys to stay in that position 
for that five second pause. Um, it's it's an absolutely phenomenal exercise because you're stretched out, but you're also stabilizing that shoulder in in a funky sort of stretched out position. And getting onto your back again without dropping the weight is also a very challenging part of the movement. So you got to keep the weight stable in the air while you slowly return to your flat on your back. Um, I've been playing around with the bottoms up variation of that recently. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably on my Instagram, or it possibly is. Yeah, I might have shared a video of it, and I found that um, yeah, I really my, my shoulders really feel feel good when I'm integrating something like that frequently. So I try to get like something along those lines at least once twice per week done into my workouts, and um, yeah, the benefits to your shoulders are huge. You know, um, you're I mean you're a big kettlebell guy. You'll know that. Yeah, you'll know a lot of these movements, but uh, I, I have found that those ones in particular, again, they're very stability focused exercises. Yeah, fantastic for the thoracic uh, thoracic spine as well yeah and as i said that's that's usually my my weakest area that that mobility area is, is my is my weakest so I, I do love to target those areas as well um also with turkish get-ups a lot of times people look at them and think that they will be very jiu-jitsu specific because it involves getting up off the floor and so on but it's not so much that you're you're doing the exact type of movements that you're going to get up off the floor in jiu-jitsu. I mean, it's not like you're going to get up and push an opponent off you in the same line of movement that you would have mm-hmm. a, um, a, a, doing a Turkish get-up. But what's happening is you're, you are strengthening the shoulders the, the, in the same way as when you post on your hand, like you said, at awkward angles, you're strengthening your shoulder. You're getting it more accustomed to being in those positions and being a little bit behind you and lock, being able to lock it down in place. So it's able to control your body weight and absorb a little bit of force probably as well because you're, you're, you're hitting that connective tissue. So it's definitely one of the, one of the gold standard exercises I find for jujitsu guys. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I've, I've talked, people are probably bored to tears of your, me talk about the Turkish get up, but, um, it's great. It's great to hear you talk about it, and and particularly the half Turkish get up. And I think a big part of the specificity for jujitsu is stabilizing through the shoulders and through one hip, and then having to rotate through through the core, right? Rotate through your central axis, which is an incredibly, um, like you said, you don't do it exactly like that in jujitsu, but that movement pattern is very very common in jujitsu. Huge, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. You, you, as I said, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So if you do have debilitating weakness there in the shoulders, you're, you're going to get swept. Your hands going to hit the floor, and something's going to snap. Something's going to go. So building that structure and that, uh, that 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 connective tissue around those rotator cuff muscles is it's it's absolutely gold for you. You know, so it's 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 definitely one that I would include in most programs, and I'd fit it in somewhere in that training week. You know. Yeah, and the big the big thing that you, you you talked about through those different exercises, it's what you're doing with your shoulder blade is one of the most important things. Mm. That if your if your shoulder blade is is you know, is coming up and coming forward, um, you know, towards the ear, then essentially what you're doing is reducing the space that your shoulder that the the head of the femur has to move and it starts to impinge everything. So I just want to make it clear to people that it's what what you do with the shoulder blade is critically important for all of these exercises. And people think, well, they think of the shoulder just as the ball of the joint, but it's it's everything around the shoulder that you've got to be thinking about. Huge, yeah, yeah. It's such a complicated joint, you know. And with jujitsu guys, as I was saying earlier, it's one of the areas where we suffer most. I mean, bad knees, bad lower backs, and bad shoulders because everything's in front of us. Everything is in that in, in that frontal plane uh, when we're doing jujitsu. So if you're sitting on your butt, the guy who you're facing is in front of you. So you're rounding your back. You're you're closing the space so that he can't 
you can't pass your guard if you're on top you're 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 um you're obviously attacking the guy who's directly in front of you you really don't want someone behind you in jiu-jitsu so uh <laughs> you're constantly working on that space that's in front and then like we're doing now, you sit at a desk and you're off time and you, you've got your shoulders probably a little rounded and your shoulder blades are separated. So we do tend to get a little weaker in those subscapular muscles because they're not working as frequently or as hard as, um, as with as much volume in our day to day as the, the muscles at the front are. So we get that short, shortened pecs, shortened anterior delts. Things get a little shorter and tighter there. The biceps too in jujitsu. Mm-hmm. We, we try not to have our arms fully extended a lot of the time in jujitsu. So those muscles just become accustomed to what positions you put them in. And if you're doing jujitsu with a lot of frequency over time, they'll just stay tight because that's what you've asked them to do so much. And that's what tends to lead to those impingement issues. So it's really good to work those shoulder blades through nice, healthy ranges of movement and, and stay strengthen up those upper back structural muscles, those subscapular muscles. I would um, pretty much every workout we do here at my gym or, you know, with some of the jujitsu guys and the online programs, everything would have like band pull aparts or black burns or something in there to strengthen those muscles because you just got to hit those things frequently because they, they, they're getting uh, outworked by the muscles at the front through the rest of the week, you know? Mm. So, yeah, I c- c- couldn't agree more, right? Couldn't agree more. Um, what do you do with the hips? Because it's a similar situation with the hips, right? It's a diff- different structure to the joint, mm-hmm. but in, in, in a similar fashion, if you haven't got, uh, you know, stability and mobility and, and strength in the right muscles within the hip joint, that it's a similar situation that it's not just the joint itself, right? It's the structure around it that gives us problems and that gets more into the core, into the psoas and all of these kind of things as well. What are the, what are the kind of exercises and or approaches that you would take for the hip joint? Yeah, so quite a few there. I have some mobility and stability stuff I would in- integrate into the warm-ups. And then I have sort of strength standard exercises that I find are very uh, beneficial for grapplers. So when it comes to warm-up stuff, um, I would tend to integrate some uh, hip cars, controlled articular rotations. Do we know what they are? Um have you have heard of shoulder cars, but not hip cars? Yeah, very similar principle. Okay. So basically, you're on all fours, and what we're doing in a very slow measured movement is we're staying on all fours, and we're bringing. Um, let's say I'm, I'm going to keep. I'm going to stay on my left knee. I'm going to bring my right knee forward to meet my elbow. I'm keeping that right knee bent. So what I'm then going to do is I'm going to rotate. I'm going to bring the the right knee outwards like a dog pissing on a fire hydrant, and then yes. I'm going to bring I'm going to bring the the right knee behind me. And then I'm going to bring it back down to the start. So again, it's a great exercise and it's it's there on YouTube. But uh, what I get clients to do, because a lot of times people don't have the stability or the strength to actually keep their right knee bent while they're working it slowly through that uh, circular range of motion. So I get them to get a tennis ball and wedge it in the back of the knee and hold onto it between their calf and their hamstring. Mm. And what, what that does is it switches on your hip a bit more. You get that irradiation, which is basically the muscles are activating throughout that whole kinetic chain rather than just, just in the hip. So your whole leg is active and strong, which makes this exercise way more demanding. And then they got to perform that exercise while holding onto the ball. And you're two reps in on that and you're doing it really slowly. It's very grueling. It's, it's, it's very tough. So, uh, if anyone out there is looking for it on YouTube, actually, if you look me up on YouTube, I have, I think, 300-something videos on my YouTube channel, and a lot of them are just a lot of these exercises. So if you look up Paul Brown BJJ, so Brown is spelt with an E at the end, but you'll find it on there. Just look for it there. 
But um, that would be I'll, one I'll, of the... I'll, I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes Perfect, as well. yeah. Because what I do is, and anything we use in any of our programs, are, I, I just make YouTube videos and I just keep them there on the channel because it means when I'm sending programs to clients, I can just link the videos. Yeah. It's so, it's so convenient. So anytime I have, anytime I train myself or have someone training and I haven't got something on my channel, I just make a quick video of it and upload it on the channel. So it's, it's, it's handy to go back to. It's a nice database. But that one is on there, Hip Cars, a little tutorial. That's one of the really, uh, really important ones I use. And obviously strengthening the glutes and obviously building stability on one side while you're doing that is important. So a hip thrust march I find is um, is very beneficial. I integrate that into some warm-ups. So a standard hip thrust where we rest our shoulder blades on a bench and we sit our hips down and then we drive them up to the ceiling and squeeze the glutes. Great exercise. But the hip thrust march is where we, we basically alternate legs. So I use just one leg to drive my hips up to the ceiling. I'm keeping the other knee lifted towards me, pulled up towards my chin. Mm-hmm. So when I hit the top of that movement, I'm trying not to let my hips or my spine rotate. So my right, my right foot is driving the floor down. My left knee is towards my chin. Once my hips come up to that parallel position, my right hip is not only working, but it's also it's working in an anti-rotation kind of line of movement. So it's stopping my spine from, from twisting. So the stability benefit to that hip is great. And then I'll sit down and then lift with the other leg. So I might do like 20 reps where I'm alternating feet and I have a little pause at the top each time. Little oh, yeah. things like that make such a difference to how well those hips function. Correcting the imbalances as well is huge, you know? So that stuff like that helps. I love that exercise. Mm, That's huge, something, yeah. yeah, it's something I do like, you know, four or five times a week maybe. Um, I recommend it to a lot of people. What do you, so for these exercises, are you giving people any cues in terms of, uh, you know, the, di- the breathing through the diaphragm and uh, engaging through the kind of the pelvic floor and the transverse abdominis? Yeah, huge, huge one I use is uh, when we're, we're, we're looking to keep those abdominal sort of, that abdominal tension integrated into the movement is, um, it always gets a laugh here in the, in, in the gym if, I, if I'm training people that aren't really used to my coaching style. But basically, when they're performing their lifts, and it, it, this, this also works when they're doing like deadlift squats or whatever, but basically I try to get them to, um, brace, to brace their midsection like they're trying to stop themselves from shitting their pants and then perform the <laughs> exercise. So yeah, it always gets that little bit of a laugh. But it, it works because it's basically, you know, it's telling you, you know, pull in your pelvic floor muscles, engage that area, and then perform the exercise. And also with the hip thrust, any type of hip thrust I do where your shoulders are rested on the bench, it's very important that you, you, you basically have your chin down towards your chest and you're looking forward instead of throwing your head back and looking up at the ceiling. Because when you, when you bridge up and you throw your head back, we go into that lumbar extension at the lower back. Whereas mm-hmm. if we keep our chin forward and our belly flat, you will have that. Uh, you'll be basically pointing your belt buckle up at your chin, and you'll be you'll be keeping your a, a much more neutral spine, which means your glutes are doing a little more work than your lower back, which is mm. what we want in the long run, you know. So those would be the main things I would cue people to do there. I try to keep the cues quite limited and simple with any exercise because if you give people like six different instructions, it's it can be a long road teaching them how to get an exercise correct. Whereas if you give them the most important stuff getting your spine in the right position and bracing your core, you know, those can be the, the important things. Mm. It's interesting that you say the chin tact. I, I, I tell people to, I'm pulling the top of my head, to keep a long spine, almost like someone's pulling with a string through the top, top, top of the spine. And <clears throat> yeah. Paul, was, Paul will see this in the video. I had someone on the podcast, haven't published it yet, but well, by the time you listen to this, it'll probably be published. And he says, and this is <clears throat> more in regards to, 
uh, you know, day-to-day, you know, various other stability exercises, is if you, if you pull your hair at the crown of your head, you know, it will na- you'll naturally kind of pull your, your spine into a long, yeah, a, long, yeah. a, long, a long neutral position, and that's one of the things... you be more that, conscious of, of your lower back, yeah, exactly. That, yeah. that would obviously work too, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's always interesting, right, to talk about, you know, similar things, but different approaches, right, and different philosophies. So it's, um, yeah, it's absolutely, always, yeah. It's always good to um, think about. Yeah, if I had hair to pull, that'd probably work for me. But I, I, I might <laughs> stick with the other two. But uh. I was, I was going to ask him, right? I was going to ask him when I interviewed what happens if the person hasn't got hair. <laughs> so, it always care. gets a laugh as well. Like, yeah, from coaching a bunch of people, and uh, you can just kind of settle them down with a few chuckles, you know, when you when you come out with shit like that too. But uh, but yeah. cues like that are then easy to remember, you know. If you, as I was saying, if you keep your coaching cues very very simple, and if it's something that's um, you know something that's even slightly funny, it's probably going to be easier for them to remember too, isn't it? Yeah, you know? com- completely. Bit of humour. Brace, brace your midsection. Don't piss all over the floor. Point your <laughs> dick up at your chin. Drive your feet down. Go. Boom. You know. I, t- I, I, t- I do. I have a similar um, thing when I'm talking about. I talk when I'm coaching people with kettlebell swings, um, and this is more for the men, unfortunately, than for the ladies. And also when I'm teaching in, in when you're inside someone's close guard, how to get the right tilt and the right position of your pelvis. I t- talk about trying to swing your balls to the ceiling. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then if you've got one or two ladies in the room, I have to apologize and say, well, you're going to have to imagine what it would be like to swing your ball. Yeah, I've, I've used that cue in a class full of ladies as well. It, it still works. They sort of get it anyway. They, you get, know? they get the point, right? They get the point. You can <laughs> exactly, take, exactly. You can take this stuff too seriously, right? Um, oh, my, 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 my daughter, my daughter is saying bye-bye as my wife cycles them. Bye! <laughs> say goodbye to them. Um, what was I gonna? What was I gonna ask you? You touched a little bit about touched a little bit on specificity um, with the, with the Turkish getup, and I think specificity is something that it can go it can go so many different ways, right? Let's take the deadlift as an example. The deadlift is a good exercise for developing a good hip hinge movement and developing strength in the, in the posterior chain. But then if you think, well, I want I want to make this super specific to jujitsu, I'll put a gear on the around the bar and I'll do pull-ups with, with a gi because then, you know, I'm practicing my, you know, holding the gi. So I think it can, it can go, you can go down a rabbit hole with specificity. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be good to get your thoughts on you know, maybe what specificity means to you and, you know, how much it's needed and maybe where sometimes it goes too far down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, Instagram is great. So when you look on like social media and stuff, you can see lots of content from people who are training for jiu-jitsu tournaments and stuff. But some of the stuff you'd see can make your eyes bleed a little. I mean, when you see people trying to do spider guard with a barbell, it's like, uh, you know, you're, you've gone a bit far there, mate. Just just go to jiu-jitsu class and try your spider guard there, you know. So it's not going to make you better by doing it with a fucking barbell. When, you, when, you, when you're in the gym with the barbell, do something that's going to make you stronger so that you can last longer in your matches. And, you know, you gotta, you, you got to split the difference somewhere. But again, and some people go too far down that rabbit hole. Some people stay too far away from it. Like you were saying earlier, they just squat, bench, deadlift. So there's there's a middle ground that's there and it, it's good to approach it. The way I always look at um, structuring someone's program is I will look at over the course of their training week or whatever, whatever the block is. Let's say they're doing a, a three-day split for their program. 
in that program, there are certain things that I want to hit, certain movement patterns that I want to hit. Um, and then what we'll do is when I'm sele selecting the exercises within those movement patterns, I'll select some uh, a variation that will maybe have a bit a bit more carry over to their physiological needs and, and maybe the demands of their sport. So I'll give you an example. The five human movement patterns I, I would use or I would sort of follow would be the ones that Dan John categorized. Um, we know who Dan John is, don't we? Yeah, I do. Everyone knows who Dan John is. But uh, his five main human movement patterns would be upper body push, upper body pull, um, squat, hip hinge, and a loaded carry. So the, the first priority I have is I want to get those in over the course of your training week and in the right amounts and whatnot. But uh, when I'm picking, you know, what hip hinge exercise they're going to do, I'm going to pick one that suits the, the, the demands of the sport. So for, um, let's say you've got a 45-year-old jiu-jitsu guy who's lower back and is a bit jacked up and whatnot. Maybe a trap bar deadlift is a better variation for him. You know, it's, it, it could be better than a straight bar deadlift. If he trains on the mats four times a week and his lower back is taking a beating, maybe the trap bar, that trap bar deadlift or a trap bar deadlift from the blocks, depending on his mobility issues, you know, you gotta, you got to select it based on, on the individual. Mm -hmm. um, another cool variation I like to use there and I, I used on a couple of our, our programs with our athletes over the last year was the, the Romanian deadlift using the reactive neuromuscular training method. So that's known as the RNT method. So that's, it's, it's like using bands, uh, or it is using bands, but not in the, the sense that, I mean, we all, we've all seen deadlifts where bands and chains are pulling downward on the bar, so you're increasing the resistance in the, uh, as the bar comes up. But on this method, what we, use, what we were using was the bands are actually attached to, the, to the, um, the squat rack in front of you. So the bands come out from the rack horizontally and they hook around the bar. The bar is on the floor about two feet away from the rack. And when we perform our Romanian deadlifts, we're trying to keep the bar very close to our legs and purposely hinge from the hips. The, the added resistance of, like the, the weight of the bar is pulling downwards, obviously, but the bands are pulling horizontally. They're trying to pull the bar away from you. Mm -hmm. So the added resistance would do certain things there. They'll make you have to squeeze your lats a little tighter to stop the bar getting dragged away from your legs. Mm -hmm. And they'll make you have to hypercompensate by using that posterior chain a bit more. So it's, um, and obviously your abdominal, the intra-abdominal pressure is a little tougher too because mm -hmm. the bar isn't as stable as it, as it usually is if it's just a straightforward vertical pull. So I, I got that idea, I think it was from an article by, I think it was Dr. John Russon. He's a great guy uh, to follow as well. He's, um, he puts out some amazing content all about training around sort of injuries and things like that. He's, uh, he, he's, he's a real, uh, he's a bit of a genius with stuff like that. But um, I, f I found that variation, I found it absolutely phenomenal. It really tightens up your technique, stops you maybe overcompensating using your lower back as much as, you know, or grinding out your reps because you really have to strengthen up your technique. So you might even be able to do it with a slightly lesser load, which is more joint friendly and uh, less compressive, which is great because we spend a lot of time getting compressed on the mat. And then uh, you're still getting that uh, extra muscular tension. So little things like that really help, you know, I would class that as being something that could be very sport specific. Um, Again, with the hinge movement pattern, I might do something in the B stance, the split stance, like we talked about earlier. It's like a half lunge. So I get people doing dumbbell or Romanian deadlifts um, in that position. So you're strengthening your posterior chain in that sort of split stance position, which you would use a lot while you're transitioning through takedowns. It yeah. definitely has a carryover, but it's, it's not getting to the point where it's a circus movement. You know, you're not, we're not. 
trying to take <laughs> down a fucking kettlebell across a room. So you got to sort of find common sense and, and, and find stuff that's going to work within certain parameters, but not go crazy, stupid, far away from those parameters either. So I try to try to find the balance in the, in the middle ground, really, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. I like I like the idea of using the band for a number of reasons on on the on the Romanian deadlift, and I think what's one of the things that's interesting about that is if we think about the hip hinge movement, um, the let's say the deadlift or the trap bar deadlift, you're pulling the the weight pretty much just just straight up from the ground. But the reality of let's say someone's got you in spider guard, and you need to you know pull your pull your hips forward. Um, to you know, to posture up and try to pass their guard, you're not pulling that weight up from a place that's directly by your feet or to the to the side of your feet, depending on what 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 um what exercise you're using. It's that force is trying to pull you forward as well at the same time. So I, I like that idea for that kind of specificity towards towards jujitsu. Yeah, it takes you away from just that that singular line of motion. It's like if you're training press movements, you're probably not only going to train flat bench pressing movements. You're going to train some decline, some incline, some single arm, different types of lines of range of movement as well within that that sort of movement pattern. So, it, yeah, it's good to do things like that with your squat, your deadlift, and things like that. You know, you can find different uh, different variations that um, that will carry over more into the sport. Um, another example would be split squats, rear foot elevated split squats or Bulgarian split squats. They would be one of my absolute go-to movements. Say that um, again. Sorry, Paul. Split squats. Yeah, but you said something else after the split squats. You said it was... Oh, Bulgarian split squats. Bulgarian split squats. Just yeah. the other term that it's known as. But uh, so, yeah, rear foot on a bench, laces down and yeah. sitting down into that squat and pushing back up. And I like to use a variation of those in most programs for you know injury permitting unless the guy has jacked up knees and can't really do them at all but uh you know there's there, there's a couple of cool variations i love using ones with an isometric hold at the bottom that those are actually what i'm using on my current personal program at the moment so a six second pause in the bottom position and then you got to drive back out of the hole because we do use a lot of that isometric strength in jiu-jitsu especially if we have people in our guard it's it's important to be able to uh, endure it. You have that. You have to have that 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 sort of clinch strength where we're not que- pushing, pulling. Question for you: Why do you do the split squat? Why do you do, sorry the isometric hold? Which is there's a lot of I, I like to talk about isometric holds and specificity mm. specificity to jujitsu, but specifically for that exercise, why do you do the hold at the bottom um, rather than say further up? With your, you can uh, do. You can absolutely. You can. That, that's another variation. You can you can pause halfway and then go down into them as well. I like using them because I know at the bottom the range of movement on my right leg and on my left leg will be identical because if my left let knee, let's say I'm, I've got my right foot out in front, my left leg is behind me rested on the bench. When I go down to the bottom, I want my left knee to be hovering an inch above the floor and mm. I can stay there. So I know my right, I know the exact range of movement that my right leg is working in. When I repeat that on the opposite leg, when my left knee comes down and it's an inch off the floor, I know that that's exactly the same on both sides. Whereas if I have to do halfway down pause, I might subconsciously be going two inches lower on one side than on the other. And it might be sort, and it could be because of a, a mobility imbalance or a flexibility imbalance. And I might then be feeding that imbalance rather than correcting it. So if you have a cue, something you may, you might want to be level with, 
uh, with your hips you can obviously use that you know if you're gonna have an athlete do it you can say you can hold a you know a, a baton at a certain level against the wall and say right well, we need to get your hip level with this on, on this side and that side so there are options to work around that but for simplicity's sake i like to get into that stretch position and also in that stretch position that's where we're we're improving our mobility so if we're spending a little longer pausing in that position it's really helping that end range strength which is um which is very vital for jiu-jitsu because we're, we're our body has to move through crazy uh, ranges of strength so getting stronger in those sort of end ranges is really important mm. you know if you have someone who's stacking you and your your hips are used to being strong when someone is passing your guard and different angles their knee sliding across and your legs are pulled open if your hips are really weak in those positions it's more likely that you'll pick up an injury you're probably not going to kick someone off you just because you've been doing bulgarian split squats but what will happen is your joints will be probably a bit more durable they'll be able to take a bit more weight coming through there than if you hadn't practiced those movements so i i tend to use it for that um for the, for, for that purpose but absolutely great exercise again for that hip stability like we talked about earlier mm -hmm. with the hip thrust march your hip is having to resist against rotation because you're paused in that position for longer. So you're spending a bit longer working on maybe what might be a little bit of a weakness, you know, a, a lack of rotation in one of your hips or something like that. So there's a, yeah, there's a multitude of reasons and that's just one variation. Another one that I really love to do is the Bulgarian split squat with an offset weight. So if my right foot is in front working, my left foot's behind me, I've got mm -hmm. a weight in only my left hand. And yeah. when I sit down, I'm trying to keep my hips level. I'm trying to keep my shoulders level as I work through the line of movement. You can even add in the, the isometric hold at the bottom on this one too. But they're basically, that's, that's loading up one side and it's really forcing your hip to hypercompensate and stabilize that joint. So you've, you have a lot of variations on that exercise you can play around with. And uh, the benefits are huge, you know? Yeah. Yeah, abso love. absolutely, Rob. Particularly when you think of a lot of the passing that we do stand in. Um, when we stand in the pass in jiu-jitsu, you end up in these kind of half lunge, quarter lunge type positions. If someone's got you in Delaheva guard, or you're trying to, you know, stuff the leg and step over, there's a lot of that, right? Where you need to stabilize on on one leg over the other in in those kind of positions. Huge, yeah, and even in the stand up, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys that, trying to sweep your legs out from under you, it's it's handy absolutely. to be able to balance a little better. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, was it Dan John that? published the book and i think I've, I've read a book but i forget who it was um, written by this is quite quite a while ago and did he did he talk about uh you know training uh, triphasic training and it's uh, i know there's someone else that has triphasic training and i think guys Caldeets is a, yeah that, 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 a phenomenal that. book on it yeah yeah, but I think, was it Dan John or there's someone else who talk, talks about essentially the same thing, right? Where you have, let's, let's take the squat as an example. You could have your normal squat, then you would have a jumping squat, then you would have an isometric squat where maybe you're, you're, you're the knee angle is, say, 60 degrees. And he talks about, you know, training those three. Um, it's the same movement pattern, right? But I suppose different forms of the exercise to develop, you know, for different physiological needs. Was it Dan John? It might, have, it, might have, it might have been someone else. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure on it, to be honest. I, th I, th I think it was someone else. Um, but yeah, the, the, I'm going back to the banded, the banded work, and I think this is, you know, in some respect, why people, it may not be the logic that people use to place chains on, on, a, on a deadlift bar, but it may achieve the same thing. If you think about, let's say you can do a 100 kilo squat or a 150 kilo squat, whatever the case, wherever the case may be, 
you're only and, and to go back to what you were talking about earlier you're only as strong as the weakest part of your chain now if we look at the the, the legs for example I think whether it's the hip angle or the knee angle is at 60 degrees, I forget exactly. But, um, you know, a 90 degree would be, you know, um, well, everyone knows what 90 degrees is, right? But you're a half squat. You're not all the way down to parallel. Yeah, you're yeah. not all the way up, like a half squat. That's typically the place where our legs are the strongest. But we can only squat as much as the weakest part in that movement. So we may be able to hold that position or do a squat in that position with, say 250 kilos, but we can only do a full squat with 100 or 150. I'm making these numbers up, but I think people will get the point. So I think there's, there is some credence and it's something that I'm, it's an idea I'm playing with. So I don't have necessarily protocols of how it would work, but an idea on mine at the moment about how do you add resistance at certain points in the movement where a 150 kilo squat um can become heavier at that higher point so you do so you're i think you, do you get the point that i'm trying to make i'm yeah, mumbling yeah. over this quite a bit and is there ways of making it uh, tougher as you're going up yeah yeah the, the the chains are a great addition the problem with people sometimes people use them wrong so when you're attaching chains onto let's say it's a deadlift bar from the moment you're lifting that off the floor until the moment you've reached the top of the range of movement the links are coming off the ground. So the, that's adding weight to the load as you're coming up. But it, depending on the chains you have, it might not work on a squat. I mean, the ones I have are about, I think they're five and a half feet long. So if you hang them on the end of the bar, there's, they're, they're not even touching the floor when you're at the top of the range of movement. So you're sort of, you know, you're only actually resting a few of them on the floor as you sit down. Whereas there are other chains you can get where you've got one long chain that hangs down five feet and then you have a bunch of chains draped on the bottom of those. So most of the chains are on the floor and you're lifting some off the ground as you're going all the way up. So the, the strength curve is changing the whole way up. Whereas with my ones, they're not. They're ch it's changing a little bit of the way up and then you just have all the chains off the floor. So in the top half of the movement, I'm not actually getting any more added resistance, if that makes sense, because it's already off by the time I'm halfway up the squat. So if you do have those longer chains, longer setup, they're, they're a phenomenal movement. They're, uh, they're great for, yeah, you're, you're increasing the load as you get into that stronger, more advantageous part of the squat. Mm. Um, there are other ones as well. So you, you've got your band resistance, so you can have your bands attached to the bottom of your rack and they're, they're looped over the bar. So as you're driving up, the bands are increasingly getting tenser and tenser. So that, that, that's probably the most standard way of doing that. And it's, it's a phenomenal tool, especially for grapplers, because what we have is we have an issue where we always have compressive force on our bodies. We're on the mats every day. We're not really recovering from our strength workouts as much as your 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 basic kind of gym rat would. And uh, we have guys on top of us. And if you're my size, you're, you're, you're like I'm a, I'm a featherweight. So <laughs> you've got you've a lot of the times you've got someone who's bigger than you piling pressure on you. So it is compressive force on your spine. And over the years, that's why you'll see people with disc issues. You know, when you're inverting under people or you're playing guard with a bigger guy on top going into the gym and loading up a big heavy bar on your back and then just making improvements by adding more weight probably isn't the answer. But if you can add, do things like that, that sort of it's accommodating resistance like bands, it makes such a big difference, you know? And that's why I like using things like isometric squat, uh, squat pauses in the squats or box squats, things like that, where we can, we can train that line of movement where it's 
it's tougher. The pauses and the things like that uh, toughen up the range of movement without simply just loading more back, weight, weight up on top of your back. Things yeah, like that are, are phenomenal, you know? Yeah, less load on the spine, right? And I, yeah. I think Phil Daru is a big um, exponent of um, the, the Zercher squat. He's the he's the strength and conditioning guy at uh, American Top Team, and yep. he's uh, he loves the Zercher squat. He has everybody doing it, and I've started using the Zercher squat over the last maybe two three years with with a lot of athletes and different variations of it because I love it. It's front loaded, which means you're more upright, so your quads are taking the brunt of the work. Your um, your anterior abdominal muscles are working very hard, but because there's less forward lean, your lower back isn't really taking that much of a workload. And also, the position that we're in, the the the, the full body tension that's required to hold the bar, you won't lift as much weight. So there's not as much compressive force on that spine in the first place. Whereas your legs will still find it very tough. In the same way that training a front squat is, you're probably going to be a lighter weight than training a back squat. Mm. So I, I like, that's one of the variations I love to use, and it, it, it's great, you know. Yeah, I, I've I've become a, a more of a fan of the front squat lately. Um, mm. I haven't done back squat in a in a long, long time. I tended to focus a lot. I couldn't tell you the last time I back squatted. Yeah, yeah, I, I'll do it with I'll do it with just the bar um, to work it more as a stability exercise. Um, but I've 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 been a big fan of like the pistol squat and variations of the pistol squat for a long, long time. Um, oh, yeah. but I've got a bit more back into, into, into bar work. Um, what was I going to ask you? Oh shit. It slipped my mind. I wanted to talk about kettlebells versus barbells, but there was something else we were talking about. You were talking about Phil Deru. What were you saying before that? Yeah, just, uh, or, um, before that it was basically talking about bands and j- just different ways of adding accommodating resistance to stuff to mean less compressive force on the spine. Yeah. I, that's what I wanted to talk about. Right. So there's progressive overload right is you know one of the, the basic principles of physiolog- physiological adaption is, is obviously you know and m- most people listening to the show will know and you know over time if we don't continue to, to continue to progressively overload the system we won't just maintain we'll actually stagnate so you need to find ways to continue to push the system but i think what you're talking about is is a beautiful way to to continue to push the system by making the, the, the exercise more complex, but not actually not always necessarily just putting more load on the skeletal system by putting more weight on the bar or whatever the case may be. So I think it's a great way to to continue to challenge the system. And I think we've got to always question as jujitsu athletes, we're strength training to be better at jujitsu. So is is it important if we go from a 150 to a 200 to a 250 kilo squat or is it important that you know where we've got strength and we've got stability and we keep challenging that challenges ourselves in maybe a more complex pattern that uh, i can't point to any studies or any research that says you know by doing it one way you have more longevity but you know my you know personal opinion is the more load you continue to put on the spine the more compressive force you continue to put on the spine it's probably going to take its wear and tear over time maybe there are studies i haven't spent the time looking at it but that's that was that was the point i wanted to make anyway yeah i mean it's just common sense isn't it i mean if more weight sitting on top of your shoulders equals more compressive force then i mean there's obviously going to be a give and take there and we're in a sport where there is compressive force on our bodies all of the time like i would tend to I would try not to deadlift more than once per week. Um, I know from a personal viewpoint, I just feel better that way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times you'll have people who squat and bench and dead a lot. They train maybe in a powerlifting style. And if you're combining that with a, for, uh, a game like jujitsu, 
the risk versus reward there, you know, how, is it really worth it, you know, in the long yeah. run? You've got to think about your spine in 20 years' time too, you know? So if you're looking at the, the five key movements that you talked about, upper body push, upper body pull, squat, hip hinge, and loaded carry, what, what frequency would you recommend people work those movement patterns each week? So, uh, yeah, there's one or two. I like, I like them all. They have to be over the training week. So, obviously, you, you, you want to be fitting them, them all into your program. So, if it's a two-day split or a three-day split, whatever it is, making sure you're fitting some of that stuff into each one. I like to integrate more pull than push with the upper body, probably up to twice as much, maybe even more if you want. The reason being, like we talked earlier, we're anterior uh, posture with that, that upper body. A lot of times we have to sort of correct all that you know, the movement patterns we do in the sport. So um, now I wouldn't just class rows and things like that as upper body pulls. I would class like band pull-aparts and blackburns, things that are making us retract our shoulder blades. So uh, the, way I the way I attack that in wind workouts is I make sure we integrate a few sets of those things into all of our warm-ups. So straight away, we're doing more pulling than pushing over overall anyway. And as I said, between squats and deadlifts, in, in the rest period between sets, I'm sprinkling in a little bit more again exercises where we're retracting the shoulder blades so little things like that make such a difference to the overall amount of sets you fit into that training week, you know? so for so for those so for the lower intensity stability activation slash mobility exercises it's, it's every workout yeah I, I, throw, I throw them in all the time and just yeah. because we spend every day forward rounded whether we're sitting on a sofa watching tv sitting sitting in our car sitting behind our desk everything is in front of us so there's a, it far outweighs the time that we're pulling those shoulders back but then for the heavier, the heavier lifts, let's say you're doing pull-ups or weighted pull-ups or a deadlift or a squat or a, upper, a, a heavier upper body push, what, what frequency would you recommend per week? I, I tend to go at least even amounts and maybe some more with the pull movements than the push. And then I'll, I'll count all the, as I said, the other stuff, the corrective work like band pull-aparts, et cetera. I'll count them as, as adding even more to the, to the pulling volume. But... I definitely wouldn't have more upper body push than upper body pull, even weighted work. I definitely wouldn't, you know. And if if I am using a lot of pull-ups in a program, I would probably increase the amount of corrective work that retracts the shoulder blades because pull-ups are actually, they're, they're training your lats and your lats are an internal rotator of your shoulders. So a lot of times people are doing lots of pull-ups to offset some bench pressing thinking it's going to help or it's, they're both sort of compounding issues that might be already going on in the shoulder so if i have pull-ups in the program or a, a high amount i generally don't have a high amount of them in there but uh i tend to uh i will offset that by integrating a, a little bit more a little bit more corrective work in even into that workout day as well to offset that you know mm. just for shoulder health purposes and yeah a similar principle would apply with the the hip hinge and the squat I would tend to have at least as much hinge work over the training week as I do squat work over the training week. Because again, we our, our posterior chain, our low back and our glutes and our hamstrings in those seated positions in jujitsu, they don't really work as much, you know. And if you if you're if you're becoming quite quad dominant, like like a lot of a lot of runners tend to become quite dominant at quad dominant. So a similar pro, pro, uh, protocol would follow there just train the back of the body a little bit more than the front of the body it's that's the simplest way of putting it you know so would, different types of rdls are, are fantastic you know would you say the hip hinge people should be hitting it once a week twice a week three I times try a week? twice, twice. I, the way i the way i find most of our the thing i found most successful with training jujitsu guys is 
using full body workouts for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the workouts might have more upper body work than lower body work and vice versa, but uh, training the whole body. So I, I wouldn't have like a leg day and then an upper body day because the frequency of your training, you might only hit the gym, the weight room, maybe twice a week, three times a week. If you're, if you're on the mats a lot, especially as an older guy, some guys are, some guys love to train, hit the, hit the weight room four times a week and then roll a lot. But I know when you get older and you have kids and a family and stuff, it's how, how easy is that going to be? So for that, for, for mm-hmm. that purpose, I, I, I've stuck to a lot of full, full body workouts. So I might have some hip hinge work on, on, on at least, you know, at least a couple of times a week. Yeah, it's four yeah. times a week. Four times a week is an incredible amount of volume, right? Um, yeah, I, on, I don't know if, I got, if my body would take it these days. I, I kind of yeah. do two or three, and I don't know if, yeah, if I could push myself to four. That's with the amount of rolling that I do. But then, you know, each each individual is a different case too. Some people are are just made of fucking iron, aren't they? They just seem to be able to train, 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 no matter how broken up they are. Yeah, some pe- some people can do it right. I think it's knowing your body, but it's also knowing your goals. Mm. Um, you know, set a few from from my perspective. You know, I, 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 people say, you know, what do I need to do to get fit, or I need I want to get strong for jujitsu. And one of the first things I ask them is, well, why? Well, you know, why are you doing it? What is it that you want to achieve? And not, you know, what do you want to achieve? What What do you want to achieve in twelve weeks? What do you What do you want to achieve in tw- in, in twelve months or twenty four months or thirty six months? Right. Um, or even longer, right? For most people, it's a little bit it's a little bit different when you get older. But for someone who's maybe younger, listening to the podcast is you know in their teens or you know very early adulthood. Unless you've got a very strong sporting and strength and conditioning background, it can take people you know eight to ten years to reach their full potential. Mm-hmm. Um, so really think you know long term of what it is that you want to do and is it really important for you to i'm going to go back to the squat because i've been using that as an example um even though i'm less of a barbell type person you know how critically important is it for you to try to smash your personal best all the time it's 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 not and once you know what it is you're trying to achieve i think you can better better plan your training and better better think about the long term for you know, I personally don't want to wake up feeling beaten up all the time. I can't sit on the sofa all day on a Saturday and just watch sport anymore. Right? You've got responsibilities. You've got kids, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, yeah, yeah. It's a big, um, a big thing, and a phrase I would always refer to. It's another Dan John one, actually. It's uh, something along the lines. I might be paraphrasing, but it's 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 a phrase I love to, to quote to people. It's the goal must remain the goal. So it's like you pick your your overall goal and everything every other decision you make training wise does it feed towards that overall goal or not you know sometimes people will be like you know I want to get my squat up to fucking 200 kilos I want to improve my 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 half marathon time but yeah but like what your was your is your actual goal your actual goal is to compete at the jiu jitsu europeans in 3 months is that going to take away from how your how how much you can train on the mats you know you've got to you've got to draw a line at, at some point and 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 your training must must always be geared towards what the overall outcome is. So if I'm if I'm sitting down and I'm designing my training program now for the next couple of months, I'm looking at the tournaments that I'm registered to compete in and everything that goes into those workouts, there has to be a reason that it's there. It's not just in there for the sake of it. You know, I'm mm-hmm. going to squat this week. Why are you going to squat? Why are you squatting, you know, X amount of days per week? Or why are you, why is your training so focused on improving your squat? What's the benefit there? Does it feed into the target that you have ahead of you? So you've you've always got to 
the, the, a good old Irish phrase I like is you can't ride two donkeys with one arse. So <laughs> you've got to sort of pick, pick, pick what you want to really achieve with your training. Not Don't pick 10 things you want to achieve. Just pick the main one and, you know, let, let everything else be centered on that main one. And that's how you'll really achieve, you know, actual results and success with that training program. You know, so I'd always kind of say, you use that quote to people, the goal must remain the goal. You know, if you if you've set a target, mm. you want to compete at X tournament, or you've got a fight coming up, or you've got a, you've got a triathlon coming up. Your training has to be designed for that. Not to, it's not about giving you bigger biceps or you know making you look good in, in the mirror. It's about getting you performing to your absolute maximum potential on, on such and such a date. We've got to mm-hmm. we've got to peak then. So sometimes people lose themselves, don't they? They they, they just want to they want to do everything in the gym. You know, I want to deadlift two hundred kilos. I want to squat one hundred and fifty kilos. I want to. I want to run them. I want to win this race, and I want to, you know, I want to do everything. But you've got to, you've got to pick something to to go for, or else you just you end up jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, I had a saying I was going to give, but when you said you can't ride two donkeys with one ass, I, I can't, I, I can't top that. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave, leave, leave with that one. Um, not leave, right? I don't, I don't want to wrap up here. I've got a lot more I want to ask you, but um, quickly without. I think it would be too much detail and maybe too too complex to get into all of the specifics of how you you know put the periodization in for for someone's plan. But what's your general approach on on deloading and planning in rest periods and rest weeks? And typically, when do you tell people to say you know now is a good time to plan in rest throughout the training cycle? Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, well, w- there's a couple of approaches I use and. Um, this one I found was great with the online groups. We experimented with this last year. So we did our, our strength training over four-week cycles. Now, for a lot of people, I would generally chop and change their program after either a three- or a four-week cycle. With the jiu-jitsu guys, I, I, I kept it at four. And the, the main reason for that is when you integrate new exercises, you know, there's an increase in residual soreness and stuff like that. So if you're changing things around dramatically all the time, uh, you're constantly just going to be you know, struggling to adapt and you're going to increase soreness. And with our over, you're looking at the overall training schedule. We don't want that to be the factor. So four-week cycles we, we, we went with. And obviously the first week is when you're doing some stuff that's new to your body. So usually you'll find that's when the soreness is, is at its worst. You know, if, you, if you're doing a completely new program next week, you've got muscle soreness to deal with. Mm-hmm. So the experiment we used was, we, we, we got everybody on the first week of the new program every month was to work at a seven out of 10 intensity at most. Mm-hmm. Just practice the workouts. It's, it's basically technique practice, skill practice with all of these things. You shouldn't come out of the gym tired, fucked up. You shouldn't be broken. Second week, you'll go back, you'll increase your loads, you'll increase your intensity, and you'll, you'll be working hard on that second week. But the soreness will have been fairly minimal on the first week. And then by the second week, you've increased the loads. You've adapted to the movement pattern straight away. So again, it'll be minimal soreness. Then you've got the third week and the fourth week where we can sort of, you know, we can test if there's, if there's further you can go, if you're able to get a little heavier on certain things. And then we move into the next block of training and we'll attack with a similar process. So I've, I found that for jiu-jitsu athletes, because of our limited recovery time, mm-hmm. I found that that was probably the most, um, the simplest way of doing it. So have it. It's a, it's kind of like a deload week. Maybe it's not overly easy. You're still walking through through your first workout, but it's like a seven out of ten intensity. And then the second week, it's like a seven to eight. Then the third week, it's like an eight to nine. And mm-hmm. then if if you're feeling good on the fourth week, we can push for more. 
if you're not feeling so good, we can just keep it where you are. So we're, we're not killing your body with intensity, but we are getting you into that 80, 90% intensity range on certain things too. So you are getting strength benefits, but it's using common sense approach. I found that was really good, you know? Yeah. I like the idea of an out of 10 scale. Um, yeah, the you can do <clears throat> exertion. That's what I always say, say to the guys. Yeah. It's, it's a good, it's a good way to do it. Right. I think there are, a couple of different approaches I take. You can look at percentage of one rep max, but you know what is your own one rep one rep max, right? It's so incredibly hard to measure and not safe. The thing safe. that you get to, guys, is we feel different on certain days too. Exactly. So I can't walk into the gym and say, fuck, I have to deadlift 150 kilos today. I can't even get up off the sofa. So I don't like having guys penned into that, like you have to do such and such amount on, on this day. Because yeah. really our, our, our training varies. Some days you'll go to the gym and you'll roll and the rounds are just going to be harder than they were the day before because there was better opponents on the mat, you know? So it's, there's, a, there's too many variables to be stuck in it, I think, in such a rigid system as following weight percentages. Yeah, completely, completely. Because your you one rep max, even if you are going to use that, is different from day to day. Yeah. Right, it's never always going to be the same. The the other thing that I like to use is, and this applies a lot more to. Uh, I'm a big fan of body weight exercises, particularly for the upper body, um, or mostly mostly for the upper body. Is how do you know what your one rep max is? And there's I forget the exact numbers or the name of the scale. I think it's Perpellin, maybe the name. Um, yes. Yeah. I see here he has the scale right, and if if you if something is let's say it's thirty percent of your one rep max, you could do fifty reps. So one of the things that I would do is, <clears throat> so you, you, you can, you can uh, this, is, this takes a bit more experience, but you know, if you're working with the people that you worked with for this camp, then you know, they've probably got this experience. You can go, could I have done 50 reps of that? Could I have done 25 reps of that? Could I only do five reps of that? And you can use that as a, a sense of kind of where you are within the percentage of, of your max for, for bodyweight exercises. And I think people can get a little bit too hell-bent on, well, science says you've got to be within 70 to 80% of your one rep max to develop this certain phys, uh, physiological, to have this kind of physiological adaption. But, you know, that's not how the body works, right? The body is not an exact science. I think it's, a good, it's good to use it as a guide. And as long as you're moving the goalpost over the longer term, or moving the needle, I should say, it, I think that's what's important. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the longer you're training, like you were saying earlier, you, you become much more in tune with your body as well. So you'll know certain days you're not going to be able for certain things. And other days you'll feel like you can do everything. So it's uh, mm -hmm. like myself as an example, yesterday was a day off training for me, thankfully. But uh, I mean, I couldn't have done anything yesterday if I had to. I couldn't. It was just one really? of those days where it's the culmination of Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So it was that yesterday, Wednesday. So the culmination of the previous five days were very tough intensity training. I'm competing in a couple of weeks. The one rest day I had in the middle, I had to drive a couple of hours up to the north of Ireland to judge MMA fights, sit in a chair for eight hours judging fights, and then two hours back drive. So I woke up yesterday, didn't have to train, and I just, yeah, there was nothing in the tank anyway. Whereas I'm waking up today, I know I have to train tonight, but I feel good today, you know. So there's days when you'll just wake up and it's... You, you can't just turn up and just robotically train when, when your body's telling you no. Mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, you've got to be able to know when, when are the good days, when are the days you've got to push yourself. But that comes with experience. It's not something you'll figure out as a, as a, as a, as a beginner or, or someone who's just training a year or two. It's, it's learning, learning that curve. You know, We all went through the bluebell phase where we just trained morning, noon, and night and broke our bodies up and mm -hmm. learned a lot of valuable lessons too. You know, so.
Yeah. That, that, that's how I'd usually handle it. A couple of things I get, to, I get the guys to use as well and I found was very useful was the simplest thing was to monitor their resting heart rate in the mornings. Yeah. So I, I monitor my, my heart rate variability. I have a little finger strap and an app that I use. What do you and use? What, what, uh, what, the what device? The app is called uh, so, I, I uh, The letter I, Fleet, and uh, I-T-H-L-E-T-E. It, um, it's just a little finger monitor. It's like 50 bucks. You, you, you attach it to an app in your phone. and it might, I lie in bed, I pop it on, I breathe for a minute, and it records my rest and heart rate and my, my heart rate variability. So these things are... It, I know there's a lot of research says that they're sort of questionable in their accuracy, but it's something that I kind of... I've, I've noticed... I've just been doing it as an experiment over the last year, and I've noticed that on the, the days when I am a bit run down and worn out, it will go into the orange zone or the red zone. And the days when I'm feeling good, it'll be in the, it'll be in the green zone. So... I'm just using it, and I've, I've followed its advice once or twice, taking days off when it's told me to and stuff. I found it good. But the simplest thing is checking your resting heart rate. If you're checking that in the morning and you're checking it consistently, just keep a note of roughly where it is consistently. And if for a day or two on the bounce, it's dramatically far away from there, that's a sign that you need a rest. So I'm a big fan of heart rate variability, and I've, yeah. I, 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 I don't measure it as much as I maybe should. I've... Because I've, I haven't come across a, a, a device, Omega Wave. I interviewed um, a, a guy, Mikhail, from Omega Wave. They're very, very good. Mm. But the price range is a little bit higher, but I haven't come across something like this kind of price range, you know, 50, 50 pounds, I think. About or, that, yeah, 50, 55 quid, something like that. So Yeah, so it's a good, it's a, okay, that's something I need to, I need to get into, actually. Yeah, awesome. I find it very useful. I I, anytime I'm... I don't do it like 365 days of the year, but if I'm in a training sort of a mini camp for a tournament or whatever, I'll, I'll double down on little things like that when I know my training intensity is going to be higher than normal. So I'll know if it tells me, look, if it comes up red, which has only ever actually happened once, maybe twice, but I'll know, I'll, I'll just listen to those warning signs and take that maybe a day or two to rest and recover and then get back on the mm. cycle, you know? And I would say that to the guys as well in, in, the, in, the, in the camps I was doing, I was kind of saying like, if there are days when you're broken up, just skip that workout carry it forward and get back on the horse in a day or two. You know, you don't have to complete these workouts in X amount of time. We can yeah. modify your program to, 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 to suit that. And it's as older athletes, that becomes way more important. We can't just gun it through, you know, and there's a time when you do need to, but at the same time, you, you do have to, you, you got to find the balance. You got to listen to your body, you know? Yeah. I, I, th I think that with jujitsu, if you're three to four weeks out from a tournament and you miss one, physical physically hard workout that's not going to make the difference between you winning or losing but doing the workout could because it yeah. could put it could push you over the limit you could injure yourself you know your form is not right those those are the times when you can actually tweak yourself but i think the the, the more important thing that i've tried to tell myself and, and and tell tell people is that at that point in your preparation, if you're not physically ready, one or two workouts is not going to make that much of a difference. Stick to the plan that you've got, of course. Be okay to take your foot off the gas slightly if you feel like you need to rest. It's more the mind. It's preparing the mind, I think, at that point in time becomes more important and will give you more advantages. So, you know, whether it's visualization techniques, you know, techniques to talk, you know, uh, 
self-talk techniques with you know confidence video study making notes making a game plan you know maybe go to jujitsu but only just drill very light drilling and you know and brainstorm your game plan game plan with someone so this stuff that you can do sometimes it's important just to take the complete rest right to take the complete rest relax allow the central nervous system to recover but there are things you can do and you know what i tell people is it's probably the mind and how you approach jujitsu mentally at that point becomes more important. Now, you still need to have the physical preparation and stick to your plan, absolutely. But one workout, missing one workout is not going to make that much of a difference. Huge, yeah, yeah. You've got to, you've got to absolutely listen to that, those, those signals, you know. And um, like an overtrained athlete will always struggle against an undertrained athlete, you know. Yeah, the, the the difference when you're undertrained, you might just be a little bit below a hundred percent. But if you're overtrained, you'll be quite far away from a hundred percent, won't you? You know, mm-hmm. if you've really pushed yourself too far, it's it's a very hard thing to recover from. It takes a little bit of time, so um, you can lose that that reaction time, that sharpness, that cognitive function, your mental clarity, your decision making on the mat. Everything just goes to shit if you're if you're completely burned out. So you sort of you got to sort of tease yourself into that high intensity work. You don't need to do all of the high-intensity work all of the time, but you've got to sort of put yourself in there, take yourself back out repeatedly when your body is ready to absorb that. And then the frequency of doing that, and the, the, you know, it's... I, I remember the... Did you, did you see the Faraz Zahab appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast that time a couple of years ago? Yeah, I did. I did. He 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 went in deep towards the back end of that show, right, with the philosophy yeah. stuff. <laughs> but yeah. I did. I, I, listened, I listened to that. I listened to that show. Great show. Yeah, he he was going into the thing about flow state where he was saying like, mm-hmm. you'll do like, you know, so much training, but you don't need to do all of the rounds. You might do three, four or five rounds every time you, you train or whatever. And then if you do have a competition coming up, you just bring the, bring the volume up temporarily and you'll do it, do that for a small window and then you're, you compete and then you come back down to sort of that flow state where you're, you're training consistently and you're, 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 you're working hard, but you're not you're not burning your body out, you know? So I've, I've been trying to follow that approach now over the last year and I've been feeling better while competing as a result. Like I'll, I'll just increase, like last week, I w- like the last few weeks, I would have added in that extra day on the mats over the last few weeks, but that's for a three or four week window in the run up to a tournament. And then I might take that one back out, you know, and mm. and, 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 and level off a little bit once these tour- I have two tournaments coming up and once they're out of the way, I'll take a little step back, but I'll still be on the mats training and still be working away. But it's just it's it's at seventy five percent rather than at ninety percent, you know. So, do you get much into Soviet periodization? Um, a little bit. Like uh, the programs we would follow with the online groups would be. I did. I actually released an online training program, an ebook as well, and it's a it's a it's a twelve week periodized program. Mm-hmm. But I kind of pricked around with it, and it's it's following the protocols that we use in the groups. And the way it works is it's it's basically three separate phases. So we have a strength phase for four weeks. We have, uh, it's kind of like a hypertrophy phase for four weeks. And then the last four weeks is athletic performance where things are a bit more about dynamic movement and, and just kind of keeping everything else at maintenance levels. And the way we work on those is during the strength phase, it's, there's a, a, the primar- primary focus there is strength work, but it's, there's obviously mobility work integrated there and a little bit of hypertrophy. And then the midsection is about that hypertrophy work where we have a bit more focus on building some muscle tissue, connective tissue, but we focus a good bit again on our, our mobility and our dynamic work just a little bit outside that. And that prepares us then for the last four weeks because the last four weeks before you compete in a jiu-jitsu tournament, you're sparring at a higher intensity. 
So that's why we do a, a, a hypertrophy phase just before it. So we're sort of armoring the body mm-hmm. for that next phase where you're like this phase I'm in now where you're going down and you're, you're only rolling with people who are going to be either as good as you or better than you. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're rolling at a higher intensity because you're, you're getting yourself in the mindset where you're point scoring. So instead of just lying on your back and riding out the round, you're 30 seconds to go. You're, you're making yourself get up and work for a sweep or get up and work for a sub. So I think it's important. So periodized programming works really well for that. Um, but that, that, that works if you're training for a specific tournament. A lot of people compete really regularly. And for those guys, what I like to do is I like to use that sort of more conjugated method where you, you train a bit of everything all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You maybe have a dynamic day and a, a max effort strength day and you know mix and match. What I'm playing around with at the moment in my own personal program is something that Phil Daru has been putting up a lot of on his content recently. It's the condensed conjugate method so you're you split your days and you've got uh, max effort uh, strength for the upper body and dynamic work for the lower body one of the days and then it'll be the other way around on the other the other workout so i might have a load of box jumps and stuff um, as my dynamic work and i'll work on a little bit of speed strength like uh, you know explosive barbell exercises with a much lighter weight and then the second half of the workout would be upper body strength and structure and then on the second workout that week, it might be throws and upper body dynamic work and followed by some deadlifting and some split squatting for the lower body just to reinforce that strength base that I've built up. So I'm finding that's really cool too, you know. So there's there are lots of different methods. And if something Steve Maxwell said once, it all works. You just got you, you to find stuff that will really work for you more than most other stuff. So you can squat yeah. and bench and deadlift week in, week out, and you'll get stronger but is it the most con- conducive approach you could take for what you want, you know? So yeah, yeah the, 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 the condensed stuff I find is, is it's a lot of fun at the moment. It's nice to be doing something a little different too. So That's lots cool. of different approaches you can look at, isn't there? there's a thousand ways to skin a dead cat, right? Yeah. As, yeah. As the saying goes, yeah, it, it does. Right. It all, it all works when applied correctly. I think um, I've been looking into a lot more Soviet periodization and, I don't know what you would call, you know, people call it wavy, wavy periodization, right? Um, but there's, there's always, there are, there are always strength moves in there, but, and there are always, um, you know, explosive lifts and quicker lifts. And I suppose uh, there's less of a focus on hypertrophy, high, high, high um, but it's the percentage of the loads that go towards, the percentage of the volume that goes towards each of those exercises that varies throughout um throughout a different period so it's maybe it's a bit more a bit more like the condensed conjugate method i i I think i would probably compare it to most and i've i've only talked about it a little bit i haven't worked with anyone on it because i've just been testing out with myself for the last kind of six to seven months um and i've still got a lot more to learn it's just i don't it's more i think i can talk about it but it's more how do i talk about it in a way that makes it easy for people people to take away and follow right it's it's very yeah simplifying the information it's very math driven, right? There's a lot of, you know, you put in, you put in the percentages of um, what a particular period is going to be. And there's, there's a deload week every three weeks. Um, and, you know, you, you, you change it based on, are you in a general preparation phase? Are you um, in a pre-season or in season? But then it's like you talked about, if you've got just a few competitions a year, it's easier to do that than if you've got competitions throughout the year. So that's hard. Um, just checking the time, right? Because I've got about ten minutes before. Unfortunately, I need to drop, and there were a couple of different things I wanted to talk about. Um, three things. I'll try and get try and get them all in. Gri- grip strength. What's your approach to grip strength training? 
Uh, yeah, I'd like to. I like using things that are specific to grip. Uh, I don't hammer it repeatedly because obviously when we're on the mats, we're we're using them a lot, aren't we? And I, like I train primarily in the gi as well, so your your fingers and stuff are taking an awful beating. You can mm-hmm. probably see on the screen there. I've got some crooked paws there, you know. But <laughs> um, it, it shit happens. But I definitely do like to get guys to focus when on any exercise you're doing. Squeeze the crap out of the dumbbell, the kettlebell, the barbell, whatever it is. Squeeze it like hell because that uh, irradiation that you're creating through that through that arm, that kinetic chain, that that that's having an effect on how you're you're strengthening your body. Um, it, it's very important that we do that because a lot of times we do things like we'll we'll deadlift or we, you know we, let's say it's a dumbbell bench press or a barbell bench press. We we'll lie there and the bar will rest in our hands rather than us crushing the bar you know mm-hmm. and it was something one of your guests actually on a podcast before so it's something about focusing on squeezing with the little finger and the finger beside it including oh yeah Matt, Matt, Matty Green that's right Matty that was a great a great um, episode um, I've, I've, I've been really really focusing on using that a lot mm-hmm. more and even when I'm doing my like I do relaxed dead hangs as well like you've been talking about recently as well I yeah. do a lot of those and I've been focusing on pulling like hell with those bottom two fingers yeah, I'm really, really focusing on that, and I'm finding that really, really has made such a difference to that connective tissue in the in the hands and stuff. Because mm-hmm. you'll know when you roll with anyone with strong hands. I mean, it's it's not nice, you know. It's not it's not an easy it's not an easy five minutes or ten minutes or whatever. So, um, big thing. And I you tend to use fat grip handles on a lot of my dumbbell work. Um, I find that, that that there's such a great carryover there again, especially if you are focusing on those two smaller fingers driving into the into the grip as well big big difference the loaded carries which is one of the i was talking about earlier the fine five main human movement patterns loaded carries i try to make sure guys are doing some variation of those at some point during the week whether it's a single side loaded carry or a a, you know a couple of kettlebells dumbbells farmers walk handles whatever but Mm -hmm. having stuff like that in 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 your your workout sprinkled throughout the week hugely important the big emphasis on how you're squeezing that weight such a carryover you know yeah, I'm, I'm going to. It's the guys with the paint. It's the guys who are like carpenters and 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 painters and decorators. And you you just train with those guys. They're just ferociously strong. And it's frequency. It's because they're frequently having to pick things up and carry things and drag things around and and work with their forearms. So if you can just integrate more and more focus on that area, without you don't have to do a hundred gee pull ups in every workout, which that'll screw up your wrists and your elbows in the long term. But yeah. And there's little things like that you can just make every other exercise a little more grip dominant by, by being conscious about it you know yeah there's a guy that trains with us and he's an electrician um and i think um not the, a traditional or not an electrician you'd think of someone goes into the house and fixes up your wires but i think more commercial stuff see so he, he's handling big heavy cables all the time and he gets a hold of you with his hands and it's like shit oh, yeah. get the yeah, fuck off a me guy i fought a couple of times at purple belt and uh good good pal of mine um but he's a he's a mechanic and he's a he's a lasso guard guy, and when he gets you in that lasso guard, you're not getting your arm back. Like it's like five minutes of just you're kicking him, you're standing on him, you're trying to pull that sleeve away, but you're not getting it back. You know, it's just very yeah. durable grip. So, yeah, modern modern living has made made our hands pretty soft. I think. Um, I'm yeah. I'm going to send you a podcast that I've just started listening to. Um, I'm I've talked about it in the past, but I'm kind of trying to, trying to research the area a lot more, and it's to do with developing the connective tissue in the arms and the fascia and the tendons and the ligaments, okay. as opposed to just the contractile um, fibers. I've talked about it in a couple of videos up on YouTube, um, but I'll send you this podcast. It's, it's, it's very interesting. 
But I, I want to move on quickly from the grips because I want to, uh, there's two, two things I want to ask you and I'm trying to decide which is the most important. <laughs> um, kettlebells versus barbell work, right? I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that. I think it's going to be more beneficial for people. And you raised a good point with, we were talking about the hip hinge earlier and you said maybe with someone with mobility limitations, you would put them on a, uh, a trap bar deadlift or a raised trap bar deadlift. And I think a light bulb went off in my head that I've been maybe too guilty of pushing. I've, all, I've, I've tried to always say that a, a, a two, an exercise is a tool and you've got to pick the right tool for the job. But I, I'm a big fan of kettlebells and you know this kettlebell swing is the most fundamental exercise for the majority of kettlebell training or you know, outside of the Turkish getup. Um, well, at least for the hip hinge. But I wanted to get your opinion on kettlebell versus barbell work. Do you have a preference for one? If so, why? Um, any general comments, really? Not, not so much, really. But obviously, with, with barbell work and stuff, you're going to be able to move more iron. So if, you're, if your goal is to improve your max strength, that's probably going to be the shorter road to get there. But I absolutely love sprinkling kettlebell work in into my warm-up movements and into my accessory movements. Again, going back to grip strength, it's, it's, it, the kettlebells move in sort of unnatural lines of movement. Like it's not linear movement patterns that we're using anymore. We're able, to, we're able to get so much more variety. And as a sports person, obviously, you need to – the best way to get strong is to train those linear patterns like squats, deadlifts, benches, of course, pull-ups. But then if you're never trained in any of the other types of movements, dynamic movements and uh, rotational movements like we talked about earlier with like arm, kettlebell arm bars or Turkish get-ups and stuff, you're sort of doing yourself a disservice. So mm. they're great. And obviously the stability aspect is great because when you're performing your kettlebell lifts, those different lines of movements put, place different challenges on your core stability your shoulder stability, again, something we talked about earlier, just they're so beneficial. That's where, where I really use kettlebells for most of my stuff is my shoulder work. I keep my shoulders happy and healthy, and I, I keep mm. that, that, that pain at bay in the shoulder from just from, from, from integrating that kettlebell work. Uh, boredom. Boredom is another reason. Like You're doing the same things all the time in the weight room. You can get pretty, pretty sick of it too, you know? So they're a great way to add a little bit of variety if you're doing things with a bottoms-up grip. I love bottoms-up kettlebell carries. I mm-hmm. love using those. I integrate them into a couple of the warm-ups each week for myself as well. Little things like that. They're just such... They're, they're different types of movements and the benefit to your joints is great. Um, convenience too. I mean, I have one guy that... A guy I'm training at the moment, an online client, and he's... He's competing alongside me now in two weeks, and uh, his gym is his back garden. Yeah. So he's got uh, he he just hates going into conventional gyms, and I don't blame him because public gyms can be just a bit of a pain in the ass sometimes. But he has a good good setup in his backyard, and he has a lot of kettlebells. He has some bars, dumbbells, a couple of benches, and a bunch of kettlebells. So I get to get creative when I'm putting his programs together. I get to modify a lot of work and stick a lot more kettlebell work in there, and he absolutely loves it. So yeah, they're great for that. They spice things up, don't they? Yeah, they do. I'm I, I, absolutely right. Convenience is a big thing. Um, the point you made about you can put more iron on the bar and you can move more iron. I've, I, I've, I'm having an internal debate with myself and a discussion with a few people and got into a debate online with someone. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know exactly where I stand on this and I'm kind of reading some research, reading some books at the moment and we'll see where it kind of falls out and I'm sure the opinion will change over time as well. But if you swing a 50 kilo kettlebell versus deadlift a 200 kilo bar, 
yes, the, the absolute load of what you're lifting with deadlift is 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 much higher, but the speed and but the speed and the acceleration of the kettlebell swing is, does that mean you're actually generating the same force, but you're generating it quicker and it's force we're concerned with rather than load? I, I don't know where I stand in it at the moment, and I'm sure there's arguments and pros and cons for both. Um, yeah. but, it, but it's interesting to, to hear you say that, and it's maybe, uh, maybe, maybe a follow-up podcast in the future we could yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, dive into that stuff in, in, in a bit more. Um, I really want to speak to you about Nate Diaz as well, and someone had put... Maybe we can squeeze this in really, really quickly. Why not? Yeah. Um, so someone put a, put a picture of Nate Diaz. Um, is it Nate or Nick? I always mix the two up. But the one that Nate does tri- the guy you fought recently, yeah. There's triathlons, right? And runs triathlons. Yeah. And people will, and, and rightly so, will say that that's why he's got such a great engine. And, and yes, you know, if you do triathlons, your cardio, cardiovascular capacity um, is going to be in, in, incredibly high. But someone mm. had posted the picture of take a look at the new peak MMA training. Bunch of comments, right? Loads, loads of people saying, yeah, you know, absolutely, blah, blah, blah. Um, what, what do you think about that statement that long, long duration endurance training should be part of peak MMA training? Um, definitely should be part of it. And the, the thing is that, I mean, I looked into this thing recently where I was, I was looking for research based on jujitsu, but there was none. But I went back to the wrestling-specific research. So energy systems used within the sport. Mm-hmm. 90%, um, uh, you've got 90% of um, alactic, so your, your power and your ability to recover from that power. And your 10% was your oxidative base, your cardio base. So during that wrestling match, you're, you're using very little of your what you would class as your your cardio base what you're using is you're using your ability to perform high, really high intensity intervals the atp system the at the atp system right exactly yeah, yeah 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 so um having a cardio base obviously it's part of it it's not something that would be discounted i would i would in, i would run twice a week myself for 30 to 40 minutes in the run up to tournaments for for like uh you know the six, that six week window and the difference i feel on the mat is huge because okay. it improves your ability to recover between rounds quicker. So your oxidative base, the better your oxidative base would mean that your, your actual recovery between the rounds, your, your ability to regulate your heart rate and your breathing is better. So obviously when you go to competitions, you need that, don't you? You've had your first fight, you're blown out of your ass. You need, you need the ability to recover better. And from the research I looked at, uh, it kind of gave me the impression that the ability to recover between the dynamic bursts, so between intervals, is improved by your oxidative base. So okay. that would mean like if I'm having a match and it's a five minute match and it's back and forth, we're trying to burst, we're trying to sweep each other, those dynamic bursts, if I'm not able to recover between those bursts, I'm, mm. my, my performance is going to dip as the, the fight goes on. And if my performance dips more than the other guys, he's going to be stronger on the home stretch. So it's kind of like your oxidative base seems to carry your, 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 your ability to display your power longer into the match or into the tournament or even just into your jiu-jitsu class so definitely has a place definitely has a place but people putting up posts like that people just love certain types of training and they'll they'll make yeah. a meme that kind of you know champions that whereas nate diaz isn't isn't such a great fighter because he he's so fucking fit and he can run triathlons it's because he's such a tough crazy motherfucker you know <laughs> what i mean isn't it isn't he he's just he's a unique individual very good bo- he's a good boxer 
a very good boxer, good grappler. Amazing, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And a brilliant jiu-jitsu player. His last fight against uh, Pettis, he displayed his, yeah. his jiu-jitsu. I was delighted to see it go to the floor. He just has that. And above all else, he just has more toughness than any other man that's ever stepped in that octagon, you yeah. know, as well as, as well as a serious skill level. It, that, 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 that cardio base that he has, I think it's only like 10% of it. I think if yeah. he was tired, he wouldn't let you know. He'd be the type of guy who'd just go forward anyway. Yeah, it, it's, it changes based on the fighter, your style, your, you know, what are your physical strengths, what weight class are you fighting in? You know, it, it's, all, it's all a, a, big, a big thing. I think we may have found something that we might disagree on, actually, for the first time in, in two hours. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm less of a fan of doing off-the-mat um, endurance training if you get enough mat time in. Um, yeah. On-the-mat training is, is consistent enough with the right kind of people because I think that I read a time and motion study. I'll try and find it and send it to you for jiu-jitsu. And it was, this was at a black belt adult level. So it's, you know, 10 minutes. It's a little bit different. Um, but the time and motion study said that, you know, I think about two, two minutes of the fight or, or 20% of the fight was spent in, you know, quick, quicker movements, but that spread out through the entire match. And yeah. most of it was spent in, you know, lower intensity, slower, slower paced movements. Um, and again, that changes by weight class, your style of fighting, whether you're an adult, whether you're master, what belt levels, so all of this has got to be, you know, you've got to think about how you apply it. So my, my, my theory behind not doing the cardiovascular training off the mat is you're going to be training mostly within your, using your oxidative system when you're training jujitsu. And, yeah. and I'm a big fan of, um, not overtraining energy systems. So when I talk about doing, you know, strength training, you, you're probably going to get most of your muscular endurance, most of your oxidative, oxidative, um, system training within jiu-jitsu so i try to recommend people to stay away from that during their you know, off the mat conditioning if you don't get enough training in um then you know fine i think it has a place if you if you feel it works i think go for it if you think it's something that helps you mentally and it's really you know, a big part of your life and it doesn't take away from your training then that's absolutely where I'm, i find I'm that benefit it. from it as well you know i, I do find that it's um it's a good time. Like I, I just get. I, I used to go out with headphones on, and I used to maybe uh, run a little. And I just got got rid of it because I like to actually just get in my head and get focused and visualize actually competing when I'm doing that. So, like I said, I keep it to a fair minimum. It's maybe two mornings a week. I'll do like a, you know, it'll be like thirty minutes, forty minutes tops, and it's not at a high intensity, so it's easy to recover from. Yeah. Well, I do find. The, I, I find whether it's psychologically or physiologically, I don't know. But I, I do find my recovery between rounds is better. Um, my, my endurance on the mat is a little better. But mm. psychologically, I do, I do like that little bit of just get out of the gym because I'm here in, I'm here in the work facility and I'm dealing with like 50 different people per day. And then, then I go to jiu-jitsu class and then I go home. It's a good place to get that just mental quiet time. Just yeah. get out in the sun. And yeah, just clear in the head, you know, so... Yeah, get outside. Yeah, it's a big part of it. I, I've, I've tried about cycling them, like a 20-minute cycle bike ride. I cycle the training once a week. Like it's like 20 minutes there and 20 minutes back. So um, I don't see it necessarily as um, card, cardio training, right? I see it as just, just moving the body. I focus a lot on my breathing uh, and breathing patterns, reduced breathing, that kind of stuff as well. Um, so the, the, breathing. Yeah, absolutely right. There's a guy, have you, have you ever heard of uh, um, Paul... Paul Macchione is, is it Paul? I don't know. Why am I saying Paul? I need to look at his, um, at his book real quickly behind me. If you can see Patrick, why couldn't I, I had him on the interview. Um, Irish guy, Patrick Mac Macchione. Yeah. 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 Another name. Yeah. Yeah. Look up his stuff. Oxygen advantage. He's, um, 
his, his stuff is very good. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting seeing the different approaches, right? Um, mm-hmm. Seeing actually you do do cardio work for 30, 40 minutes twice a week. And it's like you say, right, it all works. And it's about adapting what works for you, for your lifestyle, for your style of fighting, where you are in your life and all of these other factors. Yeah, big time. Yeah, that, that's only something I would have integrated over the last year. But again, I, I, I make sure that I don't do such an amount that it has a has a, a negative effect on my strength training or my jiu-jitsu training. So what I'll do is I'll do that before breakfast on the days when I train jiu-jitsu. I train jiu-jitsu then that night. So mm. it's well distanced from it. And I've, yeah, I've, I've, I find there's absolutely no, no issues with, um, you know, fatigue then, you know, I, I feel, feel good when I'm on the mat and stuff. Um, and with, with the nasal breathing, I try to integrate little bursts of that while I'm running. So the intensity is, is a moderate pace. And I'll try to integrate like 30 seconds here and there where it's just nasal breathing. Yeah. It's a little hard to do when you're running, but um, I've been doing it in my warm-ups and in my warm-ups before I compete all year. So I make sure that I'm, I'm spending five minutes just nasal breathing while, while doing some light to moderate intensity stuff, like maybe squat push-up, squat push-up for five minutes. And I'm finding that my body does feel a lot more awake as well. You know, the circulation of oxygen and stuff, has been, it's been proven that it's, there, there's such benefits to that nasal breathing, you know. Mm-hmm. You're filtering your oxygen that you're taking in, and, and so on. So it's uh, that's another thing that I meant to say earlier when we were talking about warm ups. I'm finding that that's that's definitely helping. You know. Yeah, I could talk it's about that. For, I could talk about I could talk about that for another hour easily. <laughs> but I do unfortunately need need need, need to wrap it up. Um, yeah, no any any closing thoughts you want to leave people with? Um, yeah, the main thing would be just to basically figure out a training plan that you can. That, that, that focuses on your goal. Like I was saying earlier, the goal must remain the goal. So figure out a training plan, figure out the components you want to put into the training plan, push, pull, squat, hinge, carry, and minimum effective dose. Um, was it the Lee Haney quote I love? Uh, stimulate, don't annihilate. So do enough that, that you get a working, a training effect, but you know, you don't, don't do something that's going to take you off the mats. You need to be putting in your hardest sessions of the week should be done on the mats. So train hard in small doses outside of the mats, but do the do the real the real grind should be should be on the mats where it matters most, and that's what's going to carry over better, you know. Absolutely, absolutely right. I couldn't think of better words to end it with. Um, let people know where they can find you. I'll post the links, but let people know as well. Real quick. Cool. Um, the, the the facility I have here, AdrenalineFitnessDublin.com. We have a, a BJJ page there where I have like 30 or 40 blog articles I've written on the, some of the shit we talked about today and they'll find it there. I'm going to be adding more uh, soon as well. Um, and also on Instagram, I'm on BJJ underscore Browner. Um, and we've also got the BJJ Strength Camp page there. So you can have a look. There's some really good content on there. Some of, some of the exercises we talked about on there uh, today will be on that too. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Fantastic. Let's wrap it up there. Guys, thank you for listening, Paul. Fantastic interview. Really enjoyed the conversation, buddy. And um, look, I think we'll need to do it again because I've got a bunch of stuff I still want to talk about. But with that, guys, good, good. Well, with that, guys, thank you for listening and we'll speak to you soon.